Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. It's your DC Spotlight for the week of April 18th, 2023. Uh, pretty solid week overall. There were some good to great books and some eh, that were okay. Um, but yeah, I thought uh, overall it was pretty strong. I think I... The books that I enjoyed, I really, really enjoyed. And the books that I didn't expect to enjoy, I didn't. So there weren't really any surprises this week, I'd say. What do you think, Rock? I would say this was a slightly elevated week for me as well. Even my usual rant of Wonder Woman was uh, there were some things that were intrigued me in the storylines. So, uh, and even Batgirls, even though it's wrapping up, I thought was, you know, better than what I uh, than in the past. And so, yeah, and I was even pleasantly surprised by Superboy Man of Tomorrow, the uh by uh, I think Kenny Porter, who won the round robin. So there's some some surprises here, and the rest were were pretty good. So I was I was uh, I enjoyed the readings this week. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's kick it off with uh, Static Shadows of Dakota, issue number three. Um, so this is the follow up to Static season one. It's being co written by Nicholas Draper Ivy and Vita Ayala. Uh, art is by Nicholas Draper Ivy. Additional colors by Will Quintana for some of the pages and then letters by Anne World Design. Um, so I thought this was pretty solid. Uh, we get a guest appearance by Blood Syndicate in the first couple of pages here. We're introduced to this new villain that's been hinted at. that actually makes his uh, appearance on cover C, I think. Well, actually, the main cover in the background. And then... Uh, he's kind of in the foreground on, on cover C. So um, I don't know that we specifically got a name for him. I mean, yeah. people are sort of tongue in cheek calling him the boogeyman. His powers are <laughs> yeah. based on shadow. I don't know if that's actually his name. Um, yeah. But what I found interesting, uh, the, the, this static series feels quite a bit different than the, the first series. I mean, Virgil his character seems relatively consistent, but you have to remember that Vita Ayala wrote the first one solo. And this time they're joined by Nicholas Draper Ivy, who was an artist along with Chris Cross on, on the first version, but obviously is very invested in static as a character as well. So I'm wondering if the, the difference in slight difference in tone that I'm feeling is from Nicholas Draper Ivy's input. I wouldn't say one is necessarily better than the other in, in a, in a way I feel like, this second season of Static feels a little more street, and Virgil comes across as a little younger to me. Um, although, like I said, the characterization of him still feels pretty uh, consistent. So it's just a really interesting take because it feels sort of fresh to me, as opposed to the first one where Vita Ayala, they really mined a lot of what we had in the original uh, Static series. And it was new to reader friendly while still being sort of faithful to what we had in the, the original 90s series. So it was an interesting balance that they had to to sort of strike there. And this feels a little bit more, as I said, fresh, something kind of of its own. Um, and I would almost say you don't even have to read the first season to jump on board and, and understand what's going on here. Although you'll get more out of this if you, if you do. Um, the art's fantastic. Draper Ivy's certainly putting his own stamp on it as opposed to when he was working with Criss Cross. Um, it, the pages were a little bit different. It was, it was almost like, if I remember correctly, Draper Ivy would handle more of the superhero stuff, Criss Cross more of the kind of familial stuff. Um, so I do like that it's consistent art. 
And yeah, it's 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 pretty interesting. Uh, three issues in, though, I'm still not 100% sure what we're doing uh, other than just kind of following Virgil through his uh, his everyday life as he tries to navigate these different problems that he's having with these, these, this mysterious force, this mysterious uh, group that's after the Bang Babies um, that we saw in the first season that still hasn't been fully explained who they are, what this boogeyman, if that's his name, is all about, and then certainly this sort of young kid who's, who's a scientific genius, Quincy Davis, who uh, who Virgil's sort of mentoring, obviously is going to play a big role. There's hints that maybe something bad's going to happen to him. Uh, toward the end of this issue as well. So overall, a solid issue, uh, a little bit of a down issue in terms of action, other than that fight between the Blood Syndicate and, and Boogeyman when uh, the, the issue first kicks off. Uh, but you need those issues, sort of setup issues, so that you know you can hit some highs on, on the following issue. So I'm expecting issue four to be really action-packed. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, what were your thoughts on this, Rocky? I thought this was, uh, I, I thought this was uh, again, the art was really good. I was... I found myself a little bit confused in parts. I thought some of the transitions were a little wonky. I thought that the uh, uh, – I'm not sure unless people are I'm, – I'm actually kind of curious. You definitely – if you don't know who the Blood Syndicate are, I think that you're definitely going to be lost during those pages. Uh, there, there are sequences where I don't know who the characters are. Uh, I – so uh, I, I'm a little bit confused, although the, the, the general plot line is still there. Uh, having said that, that I, I suspect that, you know, this, the, this has very much one thing in common with the first volume. Uh, and that is that, you know, somebody at first in the first volume of six issues, there, the, it was the government trying to get together the crime bait or the, the, the bang babies, these these kids that they went to the protest and the, the gas that was used to break up the crowd gave them all sort of superpowers. They're, they're basically glorified mutants in the DC or in the milestone universe. And and the government wants to control them in the first volume. Static and his friends managed to deal that and keep the government at bay. And, and but now we've got other we got a vigilante group, which is it appears to cons- consist of the um, other milestone characters that are coming into play. There's a lot of interest in the Bang Babies because they're a very powerful group. And but I'm not I'm not completely familiar with all the players here. There is this young kid Quincy who is an interesting kid. As you said, he is kind of a genius. He's a uh, and I, I I don't know if he's he got his genius his intellect from the from the actual protest from uh, as a bang baby, but he, he's an interesting good. He's got great kids. One of the strengths of this series is that I really, you, you, you know, these are static has a strong family. Quincy has good family. There, there's a, a strong sense of family values in static, which frankly is, well, I mean, there's, there's some politics here because I think that the African American uh, community in general, in the United States, often there's a, there's a, there's a talk about the, you know, single family dwellings and uh, broken homes and what have you. I really like that this is a very positive portrayal of of static of the of of black America and that's what I like about it and he's he's a you know all these characters are you know the, the bad guys are maybe a little bit tropey but static is someone you can genuinely look up to and uh, at least that's my take on it. I'm enjoying it. I'm a little bit confused but uh, not not in a bad way. It doesn't take me out of the story because I'm, I'm curious to see where this all comes together because it did come all together in the first volume. And and I really, I, I absolutely love the art. Uh, like I said, 
selfishly, I wish uh, uh, Nicholas I, I or Draper Ivy was on the uh, on another D, on, on some more DC titles and not just on Milestone. But uh, overall, I was I was I was still quite happy with this, and I think this continues to move uh, move the character forward. Yeah, and you know, it, I feel like if you're reading one Milestone title, you're probably reading all of them, but it. If you are only reading one, it's probably Static. He's the most well-known character. You know, he had a cartoon. So I wasn't surprised to see the Blood Syndicate show up here. You know, maybe they, DC may be trying to drum up some interest in some of the other milestone titles. Uh, but you are right. Just the way the art played out in the transitions, and if you're not familiar with with um, Blood Syndicate, you may be a little lost in the beginning. But I did notice even more so than in the Blood Syndicate comic, they were constantly dropping, you know, the names of the, the characters to try to get you familiar with them. Uh, but even in the Blood Syndicate comic, uh, it's kind of hard to follow who's who, who's a good guy, who's a bad guy and that sort of thing. Um, but that's what I was talking about when I meant it felt a little fresh, but also a little more street with Nicholas Draper, Ivy handling co-writing duties. Because um, that was certainly the case. There was a lot of slang, a lot of sort of street language, if you will when Jeffrey Thorne did Blood Syndicate and that sort of continued uh, when they showed up here. So, yeah. Uh, all right. On to Nightwing 103 written by Tom Taylor. Travis Moore is the artist along with Vasco Gregev doing art on pages five and then 13 through 18. Adriana Lucas handles the colors. Wes Abbott on letters. This is rise of the underworld part three of four as Nightwing continues to team up with the Titans to take on Neron who is trying to, collect the soul of this very powerful young girl named Olivia, who is Blockbuster's daughter. And, you know, we know Blockbuster uh, made a deal with Neron to have more power and in return gave up uh, his daughter's soul, which, you know, you expect a, a scumbag like Blockbuster to have done that. Um, but what's not clear is just how powerful Olivia is. Um, and what her powers are? Is she just super strong and, and have some level of invulnerability like Blockbuster? Does she have other powers? I'm not really sure. Um, she gets taken to Themyscira by a Starfire and Donna Troy. And so she can be trained how to use her powers uh, by the Amazons, which is pretty interesting. Meanwhile, uh, the Titans, Nightwing, the other Titans, Nightwing and Raven and uh, Cyborg and uh, Beast Boy go to hell, go, go to visit Neron, if you will. And they're looking for the contract. And uh, once they find the contract that Blockbuster signed, Nightwing, Dick Grayson comes up with an, uh, an idea, a way to sort of legally, um, if you will, prevent Neron from collecting on his uh, his debt that's owed to him, this uh, Olivia's soul. So he does that through some, uh, some help of his sister, Melinda Zuko, mayor of Bloodhaven. Basically, Blockbuster, since Blockbuster's dead, Olivia technically becomes a you know ward of the the state, if you will, or ward of the city of uh, of Bloodhaven, gets uh, handed over to social services, and, and then she in turn appoints uh, Dick Grayson or Nightwing as Olivia's guardian. Since Nightwing didn't sign the contract, and he is currently the legal guardian of Neron, um, it's sort of this loophole that Neron will not be able to collect the soul of Olivia unless Nightwing signs the contract as well, which of course he's not going to do, uh, and Neron. Uh, offers Dick something that he believes he'll want, you know, deal with the devil as it were. Dick obviously very skeptical, but he's offering to give him powers. He's offering to give Nightwing superpowers um, so that 
he will in turn sign the paper. Now we all know Dick Grayson is not about to sign the paper. I think Neron on some level probably knows that there's no way Nightwing is going to uh, sign the contract either. He's nothing you could offer Nightwing that would uh, allow him to give up the soul of an innocent um, in return for, you know, anything, but it does give uh, Tom Taylor a chance to write some stories with Dick Grayson with superpowers. So uh, we're told that next issue we'll have the temptation of super wing. Um, so overall, this is okay. I have to admit, I'm not enjoying the series as much when it's basically teen Titans and not Nightwing. Th- this is what this is sort of a, like a preview, if you will, of what we're going to get in the upcoming teen Titans series. Also written by Tom Taylor with art by Nicholas Scott. Now I'm fully on board with that, right? Like I'm not the biggest Titans guy in the world. Uh, more a fan of of Nightwing himself than the Titans as a group, but I'm you know a pretty big supporter of Tom Taylor's work. I think he's a really talented writer, and Nicholas Scott is one of my favorite comic artists of all time. So uh, I'm fully on board with that. I thought their Earth Two run was fantastic. So I'm ready for that, but I'm ready for that in its own book, right? I pick up a book called Teen Titans. I expect Titan stories. If I pick up a book yeah. called Nightwing. I sort of expect Nightwing stories, um, but really what we're getting right now, as I said, is a is a Titan story. So uh, I'll be glad when this arc is over and we can get back to focus on, on Dick Grayson as sort of a, a solo character, because there are still some stories that haven't been resolved. The story with uh, plot line, thread, whatever you want to call it, with Heartless is still out there. And um, Dick and Barbara's ongoing romance, where's that going to go? And then just the idea of having Dick solo because he doesn't have superpowers and he can feel threatened. And it is a little bit more of a situation where he sometimes has to, you know, look within himself determination, not, not even though he has superpowers, but not unlike those early Spider-Man stories, right. Where sometimes he was feeling overwhelmed or he was outgunned or outnumbered. Uh, And then the other thing that is really interesting that you can do with solo Nightwing stories is kind of lean into that, you know, Batman sort of, de- you know, detectives type of stuff, which Tom Taylor hasn't done too much of with Nightwing. And I'd, I'd like to see what his take on that would be. So uh, I am looking forward to that. But I, I have to admit, even though this is more of a Titan story, I am also looking forward to seeing Dick Grayson with superpowers. The super wing idea, although we know it's not going to stick, seems like it could be a lot of fun. So uh, looking forward to that as well. As far as the art goes, I thought it was overall pretty solid. Uh, I wasn't, you know, necessarily... Uh, you know, sometimes when you have multiple artists on a book, it can kind of, you know, pull you out of the story. You flip from one page to the next and it's, next and it's a different art style. Uh, I think these two artists have a similar enough style that it, it w- wasn't really noticeable. And overall, I thought the art was pretty strong. Um, so, yeah, it, it was an enjoyable issue. But as I said, I'm ready to get back to, to some solo Nightwing stories. Um, the backup was uh, was interesting as well, but maybe not quite as uh, as good as I found the previous couple uh installments of the backup, but I'll talk about that more in a second. Give us your thoughts on the, uh, the main story, Rocky. I, I find myself really finding Nightwing to, uh, just get continuously, um, uh, more and more and more and more boring. Uh, I, I was really hoping that Tom Taylor would rank up the plot, but he's, I, I know that's really not his style, but he, he, he does, he, he can at times really nail the plot and have some really interesting high points. I mean, he's, he, in fact, we're going to be reviewing, uh, the, uh, the undead, you know, uh, deceased, uh, war of the undead gods, number eight, it, that finishes on a, I think, uh, 
very interesting uh, plot driven kind of cool but character driven and plot driven high note uh, with some tragedy uh, but uh, this Nightwing, it's such a feel-good story that it it's it's like it's not it's actually not bad, I guess. But I just I'm just un, so underwhelmed by it. It's I hope it's building to something because this is the Teen Titans. The Teen Titans, you know, you talked about you know while well, you're looking, you're hoping for a good Teen Titans story at some point. Well, they're the Justice League now. So I'm hoping for something far better than your typical Teen Titans. Now, this is so if we're going to see this is this is the this is going to these characters are replacing the Justice League and they're they're battling Neuron fighting for a little girl's soul and battling the Grinning Man on Themyscira. And I mean, they, they easily defeat Neuron. Nightwing easily defeats Neuron as we kind of expect him to. And, uh, you know, on Themyscira, the rest of the Titans make quick work of the Grinning Man, more or less. Uh, the Grinning Man impersonates, impersonates Wonder Woman and there's some deception involved and it's all right, I guess. It's just very meh from a plot-driven perspective. Good character work. Tom Taylor absolutely knows the voices of the DC characters. And maybe it's... But it's it's he's so good at the character work, I actually do... I miss sort of more sophisticated plots. This is kind of boring. And also, as a lawyer, I've been I've been a lawyer, a family law lawyer for a long time, and I'm, I'm, I'm the only reason I'm playing that card right now is... Um, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, Dick Grayson becomes a guardian after Dick Grayson is bound by the agreement that the previous guardian made. He can't override it or impose a further condition on the contract. So in fact, the way this resolves doesn't make any sense from a legal point of view. I'm just being honest. It doesn't make sense. You can't, you can't become a guardian after the fact. If you become a guardian of a child, you're bound by the previous guardian's decisions. Um, on when it comes to a contract, I think of selling your soul. So I think Neuron needs a good lawyer. Uh, you know, what the hell? <laughs> Are so you available, Rocky? I'm available. If he wants to retain me, I'll happily take that because it would be a fairly easy case in my estimation to win. But hey, um, that's neither here nor there. Uh, perhaps Tom Taylor, he should consult with maybe Charles Soule in the future, who's a, who's a lawyer. He does mostly immigration, but I'm sure he could probably clue him in on some of this works. But <laughs> that's a quick aside. I had a little bit of fun with that. But no, I, the Travis Moore art's re really good, fantastic. I love the action sequences. Olivia's a good kid. She's a fun kid. There's fun to be had here with the characters. And it's, once again, th this is such a feel-good thing. This isn't a sophisticated story at all. And in a way, I'm, I should be happy with all the character work. And I am. I just really wish that these plots just had a little bit more, a little bit more and just sophistication to them. They're, they're, they're very, very unidimensional, uh, very simple, very quickly resolvable they're nothing. This isn't a must read for me anymore. It just isn't. I, I'm not, I, I don't expect much anymore. I expect dragged on dialogue and cute moments between characters. I, I no longer expect Nightwing to be a plot driven book. And I've already forgotten about Heartbreaker, Heart, Heartless. And that's really, really sad. So I hope really Tom Taylor gets this back on track because I, 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 this feels almost like it's from a plot perspective, it's a derailment to me but character work is all there but without a plot without character driven sophisticated plot well then you've wasted the characters i mean you might get their voices right but if their voices are in service of a of a plot that's one dimensional you're not you're not doing your your best in my in my estimation and this could be better tom taylor you're a great writer but this is a title that could be better
I'll leave it at that. Oh, and uh, and uh, yeah, and as for the backup, I'll let you talk about the backup. Interesting backup with uh, Nightwing and John Kent. Yeah, Nightwing, uh, we know in the backup, so first of all, let me give the credits. Uh, backup written by C.S. Picot. Eduardo Penseco does the pencils. His longtime collaborator, Julio Ferreira on inks. Adrian Lucas on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. Uh, it, Night at the Circus, part three. We know there was a bomb was set off at the circus. And uh, one of the trapeze ropes separated. And this woman, trapeze artist, uh, almost fell to her death. She was doing an act with her son. And it's been sort of a little bit of a mystery. Who cut the rope? Who planted the bomb? And it's Superboy John Kent teaming up with Nightwing. Nightwing's supposed to be the one teaching him a lesson. And it's actually Nightwing who gets a, a bit of a lesson here because it turns out the boy cut the rope on the trapeze. He thought that was going to be his trapeze. He thought there was going to be a net. He didn't mean to endanger his mom. And it's all in the interest of he just wants to be a regular kid. He doesn't have time to make friends or do all the things that regular kids do because he spends all his time training because it's such a dangerous um, activity. And uh, it's kind of an emotional scene between mother and son when uh, Nightwing and, and John can't figure out what's going on. Nightwing can't really relate. He loved his time in the circus, but, you know, different circumstances for different kids. So it, it is emotional, um, but it still leaves the mystery, even though they solved part of it, right? Who cut the, the rope and woman and, uh, and son are um, have a heart to heart and going to have changes and what have you. You know, this poor kid has been um, sort of forced to do something that his mom thought he liked because she, you know, loves it and she thought he loved it. Turns out not to be the case. So they kind of get a win there, but the other half of the mystery who planted the bomb still needs to be uh, solved. So I like the dynamic between John and Dick. Um, you know, these are basically the two super sons, if you will, the true two true super sons. You know, I know that Dick Grayson isn't the biological son of Bruce Wayne, but he's the first, right? So more like the second generation of Batman more so than, uh, than Damien. Um, so I do enjoy that. And the art is really, really strong. Um, but I sort of felt like this should have just ended here. I, I don't, and, and again, I have no idea if it'll feel like it drags on. Um, but I had sort of forgotten about the bomb. We've been so focused for the last couple, uh, installments on who cut the rope and the trapeze artist. I had forgotten that there even had been an explosion. Yeah. Um, so it sort of felt like it could have ended here and, and been a good sort of story, a feel good story. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I guess we'll see. I won't be able to say whether, you know, without having read it, whether I'll feel like it dragged on or if it uh, ends up being an even more satisfying conclusion. So I guess we'll see. But the art and the colors are absolutely top notch, which I yeah. expect from this art team. Uh, and they didn't disappoint. So how about you? What do you think? It reminded me of the <clears throat> of the world finest story. I think there was a uh, the world's finest issue by Mark Wade where he wrote about. Uh, Superman and Batman and Dick Grayson going back in, in into the past and in, in the eight what, the late eighteen hundreds and there was a circus story and they there was a mystery that they were solving and I think but that was only one issue so this anyways this this is a it's a it's another well written story I actually like it because I'm I actually am surprised by how much I'm enjoying the Nightwing John older John Kent dynamic you're absolutely right that. Damien is simply now he's younger than John Kent. It just doesn't work. The 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 Damien John Kent dynamic when John Kent is older, it just doesn't have the same sort of resonance as I think uh, I think Nightwing and John Kent do. I I kind of like this, even though it's kind of mentor and mentee. 
I actually get a sense of sort of like a mini world's finest here between Nightwing and John Kent because they, they kind of look the same age. Even, and they, well, let's face it, they look like period. They're both white. They're both black hair. They, they kind of look the same. I mean, I challenge most artists to make them look actually different other than the mask on Nightwing. They're pretty much identical. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's a very, you know, kudos to an artist that can actually pull off the differences and how these characters look alongside each other in terms of one just slightly older than the other one. Uh, but uh, that, you know, Penseca manages to pull that off here. And it's a feel-good story again. Uh, great, great emotional moments here. He channels... Uh, uh, writer Paquette uh, channels his inner Tom Taylor, and there's some really good moments between mother and son here uh, about a kid who just wants to be a kid and he doesn't want to be a trapeze artist. Some kids just want to be kids. Imagine that they don't need they don't need to have drama filled lives. They just want to have fun. You know, how's them? That's a good message. And uh, so yeah, it's uh, this this entire issue is I guess feel good, and that's what Tom Taylor has come to represent to so many people. There's really feel good stories. Heavy on character work and feel good moments, and but at the expense of sophisticated, drawn out plot lines. And uh, you know, he's at his best when he can find that comfortable middle ground. So, yeah, I would tend to agree. Um, and he certainly has in that uh, in that story. So, uh, all right, moving on. Superman number three is from writer Joshua Williamson. Art and cover by Jamal Campbell, letters by Ariana Mayer. And I should also mention we're getting some Superman um, 85th anniversary covers, which are pretty solid. So there's a lot of great covers for this uh, this particular issue. So uh, we saw last issue ended with a parasite infected Lois Lane infecting Superman. Uh, and so he's infected with uh, these microscopic parasites. And we wonder uh, how could that happen? Well, you know, the they've, it's nighttime in Metropolis. They're draining so much power. Superman's not quite as strong as he has been previously. But even though he's infected, Superman still is able to sort of control himself. He's not out there like most of the infected, just looking to feast on energy. So he goes to Lex Luthor, uh, finally admits, maybe finally admits that he needs Luthor's help. Um, and they go to what used to be LexCorp is now SuperCorp as Lex has tried to give his company to Superman while he's in prison and basically sort of tricked the parasite into showing up. And then Superman further tricks the parasite, you know, parasite still being hungry as he always is hungry uh, for more power. He's like, well, you've got all these mini versions of yourself that are out there collecting energy to the point that there are microscopic ones. And that's how Superman himself got infected, almost like nanite versions of, Parasite. He's like, if you're hungry, why don't you just, you know, call them all back, eat them, and so he does. Uh, he eats them, <laughs> and for the first time ever that I've seen, um, Parasite is actually full. And after absorbing all this, it's like he's going to explode. He's got so much power, uh, but then Luther is able to use a neutralizer uh, to knock him out, and it's also going to neutralize the radiation poisoning that caused. Um, Parasite's powers to go crazy in the first place. And we know that it's that cabal of mad scientists who are behind it all. Uh, what Luther might know, we're not 100% uh, aware of. Um, but those scientists basically say that they they think they're getting one over on Luther. Meanwhile, Luther's trying to get one over on Superman, although he seems to be wanting to give Lex a benefit of the doubt to the point where he even, even gives him a signal watch which is sort of uh, an interesting take to see uh, Luther with a signal watch. So 
what I'm enjoying about this is sort of the multi-level villains that we're getting, right? When we have this cabal of mad super villainous scientists that are pulling the strings and it seems like they're going to bring these classic Superman villains and sort of um, level them up in terms of their power and then send them after Superman. So we got Parasite, very classic Superman villain. Now we're uh, based on the final panel here. We're going to get Silver Banshee next. Also very much uh, somebody that's in the Superman rogues gallery. So who else we might see? We'll have to wait and find out what Luther knows, what he doesn't know, what Superman may find out. I mean, at the end of the day, Superman is working with Lex Luthor. And believe me, this doesn't, he hasn't taken this lightly. Uh, you know, he had a long talk in the middle of the issue with Lois because he just, he doesn't trust Luthor. Uh, and Lois's advice is basically, well, if he's tricking you and you don't go along with it, that it might be because that's what he was expecting. But he also might know that you're expecting that. So then expect you to go the other way. So ultimately, the only way to find out what Luther really has planned is to go along with the plan and trust that you have the ability to stop whatever machinations Luther is up to when the time comes. And uh, I think Superman, you know, once Lois says that, and he probably already realizes it on some level, and he's just looking for that confirmation. So he gives Luther the signal watch and where this might go from here. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. So uh, I am enjoying this. The Jamal Campbell art is fantastic, especially um, there's this double page spread following the, the page where Luther gets the watch uh, where the top panel of that double page spread is Superman zipping through Metropolis and his cape is like this long trail of uh, his flight path, if you will. Um, and I don't know. It just looks really cool. I, I mean, Jamal Campbell's art, it, he's using a little bit more of almost an animation style, a cartoon looking version of Superman here, but I don't know. It's working for me. Uh, I'm really enjoying it. And obviously his color work is always, uh, always fantastic. So um, this is fun. It's Williamson, Joshua Williamson, the writer is not taking Superman too seriously. And it's a good contrast with what's going on over there in action comics, which feels like a very grounded story um, with, you know, fantastic art in its own right that feels a little more grounded. And this is feeling a little more in that traditional DC sort of fantasy superhero realm. So I'm, as I said previously, I think when we reviewed the second issue, I cannot remember the last time I was enjoying Superman and action both so much. I mean, probably back at the beginning of Rebirth, I guess, when Dan Jurgens came back on action and we had uh, Tomasi and Gleason doing sort of a Super Sons um, Superman stories in, uh, in, in the Superman title. So I thought this was fantastic. Um, I mean, some great images, Superman and Lois sort of dancing uh, six inches off the ground at one point, gorgeous color work. So yeah, overall, I thought this was pretty strong and I, I'm, I'm very much looking forward. I hope this continues with these mad scientists sending these Superman, classic Superman villains up against him, um, you know, powered up because uh, it's fun. We don't see enough. It's too often it's Lex. It's Superman going up against Lex over and over and over. So far in the action comics run, um, with the War World saga, it was just Mongol. That's all. That's all we got. Um, yeah. I like when we get, hey, maybe two or three issues of this villain, and then a couple issues of this villain. Instead of seeing the same villains over and over and over, right? Instead of seeing Joker constantly or Riddler constantly for these long arcs, like give me a, a new villain every couple issues. There are so many great ones, um, and I know Superman, his Rogues Gallery doesn't 
reached the level of like Spider-Man or Flash or certainly Batman, who probably has the best and most well-known rogues gallery. Um, but he's got some classic ones that are sort of um, specific to him. And it's uh, it's great that we're going to see them sort of cycle through here. At least that's what I, I'm hoping that we see. So uh, what did you think, Rock? Well, you know, we get many different versions uh, of Lex Luthor over the years. And uh, we've seen Lex as a super villain. We've seen him in his various mechanical suits. We've, and we've seen him as a hero. And we've seen him as an anti-hero. And uh, we know how Luther feels about Superman. We know very well what he feels about Superman. He feels that the world shouldn't look up to a Superman. Superman's an alien. The world should look up to Lex because Lex is at least human. And there's that dichotomy and that will always exist between them. But I like what Joshua Williamson has done overall. I had my serious doubts for the whole idea of a super corporation, super core. I thought it was sounded a little bit absurd at first. But strangely enough, it's kind of growing on me here. And with Mercy sort of being at Superman's side and... Superman and Lex Luthor being actually sort of like business partners of a kind, really. Even though Superman is technically in charge, everything's been signed over to Superman. What does Lex Luthor have to lose? Lex Luthor could make a billion dollars in a week if he wanted to. He doesn't need money, Lex Luthor. He can acquire it. He's a genius. So it's actually quite intelligent what Lex Luthor's doing. He's in jail, and yet he gets to work with the greatest superhero in the in the universe, Superman, uh, working with for a corporation that he built that Superman runs but really we, we we know Lex is Lex so we know Lex still has some power some influence and this this is Lex Luthor exerting some influence over Superman and Superman playing the game exerting some influence on him they're connected through this the Superman watch so it's not just Jimmy Olsen that has a watch but now Lex Luthor has one which I find kind of funny because Lex Luthor I think doesn't necessarily need a watch I think Lex Luthor if you Lex Luthor generally speaking doesn't have a problem getting Superman's attention. He doesn't need a watch to do it. But it's interesting that he gave it. Uh, g Superman gave Lex Luthor that watch. And I'm actually wondering, does that watch, is it different than Jimmy Olsen's watch? Is it Does it have certain properties? I don't know. But this was a really good issue overall. It was action-packed. It had action, romance, supervillains, uh, mad scientists, and uh, hidden agendas, a tease for next issue. We got Silver Banshee showing up next issue that these e evil, wicked scientists that want to get revenge on Lex Luthor, that they're going to be thrown against Superman. And we, we still don't know really what their end game is because if the, you think that they wanted to kill Lex Luthor, that they would attack Lex Luthor directly. But for some reason, they're they're attacking Lex Luthor. They're, they're, they're using Superman... They're attacking Lex Luthor through Superman, which I suppose now makes more sense given the fact that now Superman and Lex are clearly connected through a corporation, Supercore. And so, you know, interestingly enough, both Lex and Superman are setting themselves up to be attacked by each other's enemies because as word gets out more and more that Superman and Lex are connected through Supercore, it's actually an interesting thing. It's a curious choice for Superman to have done that and agreed to that because will people, will the citizens of Metropolis in the world begin to question Superman's sincerity knowing that he actually works for a corporation that while technically he is the sole owner of, Lex is still, he's still working with Lex. And what will the world do when they find out that Superman gave Lex uh, a, a watch? Not that they'll find out, but it, I, I like the questions that, 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 ra that are raised here with what Williamson is doing with the storyline. And it's, it's, 
this feels new to me, even though in many ways it's sort of drawing connections from other past storylines. I like how this is all coming together. And the art by Jamal Campbell is just fantastic. So this is definitely one of the one of the best reads of the week. I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, it was, uh, it was great. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Black Adam number 10, uh, Stand, book, or East of Egypt, book three. Uh, and we're told there's a two-part finale coming. I'm like... This whole thing has been one story, right, that you planned out, Christopher Priest? Uh, I thought that wording was kind of wonky. But anyway, as I said, written by Christopher Priest, Jose Luis and Montas handle the pencils, uh, Jonas Trindad and Montas on inks, Matt Herms on colors, Willie Schubert on letters. Uh, as it has been the sort of modus operandi throughout, uh, we get a few different storylines going on here. We get Adam trying to reconcile his past with his, his present as ruler of Kondok. We get these gods from the Akkad that we find out he had a hand in creating, trying to uh, manipulate things for their own purposes. And we get Black Adam trying to, to basically find his place in the world. So this is ended up, and I should have expected it, right? I mean, it's a Christopher Priest story, a much more complicated and nuanced story than I expected. Uh, but much like a lot of Christopher Priest stories lately, certainly was the case with his Deathstroke story. While it's good in single issues, you get the most out of it, and it's easiest to understand when you read it in trade. So it's gonna. This is gonna be another one of those situations where reading this in two six issue arcs in trade or in one big 12 issue arc uh, in, a, in a hardback collection is going to be a lot more satisfying, I think, um, because Christopher Priest drops so much context, refers back to things in previous issues that at the time may not stick in your memory that, you know, they're almost casual asides by uh, one character or another. So um, how this Malik Adam, who is a new character that was introduced in this series, how he might continue to be part of the Black Adam series going forward, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, and then it's the same thing with some of the supporting characters, right? As I mentioned, the, the gods of the uh, Akkad, their version of war, their version of love, um, are, are very involved in this story to the point where their version of love takes over the the friend of uh of malik uh adam his his love interest if you will um tr tries to tell this you know version of of love that she doesn't have feelings for him and he's like ah, i know your heart i know his heart i don't know why you're uh you know trying to hide from me but then she she herself this goddess uh takes over jasmine takes over her body and goes and tries to seduce tet adam who I don't know if it was physical, just a physical attraction, but there seemed to be some sort of connection when Jasmine first met uh, Black Adam. So it's almost this three-way triangle here, this love triangle that Christopher Priest has set up between Jasmine and Teth Adam and Malik Adam, although it's only sort of um, maybe instigated by this uh, this Akkadian goddess of love. Is she doing it to bring Teth Adam and Malik Adam to blows? Is she doing it so that Malik will realize and acknowledge his feelings and Jasmine will do the same? Like, we're not exactly sure there. Again, with Christopher Priest stories, so often there's more than meets the eye. So you have sort of the action packed stuff in present day with these Akkadian gods apparently trying to start a, a war um, 
between Kandak and, and other Middle Eastern nations for their own benefit, maybe to sort of weaken Teth Adam, maybe to make him, to force him to take a stronger rule or to take a step back. Again, the story could go in so many different directions. And then we still have the, the flashbacks to when um, Teth Adam was a slave and then became a pharaoh and, and all that sort of stuff. So there's a lot, as I said, going on here, which is why I mentioned, I think it'll read so much better as a collected edition, as a lot of Christopher Priest stories do. So, um, but overall, it's really strong. I think the art is great. Um, uh, yeah, as this series has gone on, for me, it's just gotten uh, better and better. So, and my my dogs are enjoying it too. So, uh, what, what were your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I'm. I think that there's the makings here of uh, of really adding to Black Adam's family. Very, very, very dysfunctional family, and I—I I mean, I don't mean family in the in the nuclear sense. I mean, uh, Black Adam family in in both the, the the comrades in arms and and in the enemy sense. Because it seems like it's not just Black Adam that has lived to the present day. He's somehow Black Adam by just being banished by the wizard in the deep recesses of space and and coming on some space stuff. He gave the he created the the Akkad Akkadian gods that out of space dust or something. And, and he gave them sentience. I, I don't really understand. That doesn't make a lot of sense. They end up coming back to earth and I don't, we don't know. We still don't know what their agenda is. And we're like 10, 10 issues in and they, one's talking about war. The other one's talking about love and enters the body of Jasmine and is kissing black Adam. What do they want? What are they doing? It doesn't seem like they have any sort of rhyme or reason to what they're doing. There's sort of, I don't know what their plot is or what their purpose is. I, I don't know. And then we have, uh, uh, and, and then even Black Adam, what, what is exact, exactly is he's doing? He's, he's overcome the infection because at the beginning I thought he had this affliction that was causing him to lose the power and he was all embodied in this ring. I'm not sure what the ring is, what purpose the ring serves anymore. What exactly is Malik doing? Malik has the power. How exactly are they connected? I'm, I, I've, I've forgotten about a lot of these key points and I'm not really sure how they're all sort of connected. Even, even the slave that enslaved Black Adam back in the days of Kandak, 25, whatever, thousands of years ago, he's now reincarnated too. And so every, everything, everybody that seems to have played a role in Black Adam's life in the distant past has been reincarnated and... And they're forming part of his life just now. And it's all coming together in this 10 issues. And I still say this 10 issues reads, it's a convoluted read. And I think it's going to remain that way. If you were to read this from beginning, if I were to go back and read the 10 issues from one to 10, I think it, would still, it still reads a little bit, little bit confusing. Um, I wish it was more clear. And, uh, but what I'm, the reason why I'm very positive about it moving forward is, and <laughs> this isn't, is this an overhanded, maybe insult or an underhanded compliment? Other writers who will be told by Christopher Priest what he wrote here, I think they'll make it, they'll, they'll be able to summarize it a little bit easier for future stories of Black Adam, because these are interesting characters. Jasmine's an interesting character, whether she's in love with Black Adam or Malik, uh, I don't know, but uh, we're not, not clear on that. But Malik is an interesting character. I like Malik. And this uh, Jasmine character, his love interest, Jasmine, that's interesting. And I like the fact that Black Adam, he's got a dysfunctional and, of course, a problematic relationship even with Batman early on. He's he's a world leader. And that I really like that about Black Adam. I like the fact that he's not a democratic leader. He's a dictator. 
And maybe in the sometime in the future, as he says, he'll have Canada be a d- democracy. But it isn't now. It's not ready for that. That's how he views. I like the fact that Christopher Priest isn't doing the tropey, oh, like 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 what Stephanie Williams and what the Clune Rider doing over in Wonder Woman. That oh yes, the, the mascara is a democracy, or and, and they have democratic ideals. No, they don't. They shouldn't. They're Amazons. But I won't rant about Wonder Woman. But at least Black Adam stays true to his tradition. Kandak is a dictatorship. He's a benevolent dictator. I like the fact that Priest is doubling down on that. You don't just become a democracy overnight. And in fact, why should you? Uh, but, you know, but I, I like the controversy. I like the questions that those raises. So I love the questions. It's a little bit confusing. But at the same time, I like the challenge of reading this. Strangely enough... Oddly enough, Black Adam is always one of the comic books that I read. It's usually in the, my top five read pile when it comes out in any week it comes out. So uh, Christopher Priest, as confused as I might sometimes be, there's something about this series that I'm enjoying. Yeah, I mean, he always gives us all and there's always a lot of depth yeah. there. And if you want to go researching, um, yeah, there's, again, a lot to, to unpack. Um, it, it, I feel like his comics, though, they would... Every single issue could do with a director's cut, because if he was explaining, you know, along in the script what we were actually reading and seeing, again, it would be even more depth of story. So, because mm-hmm. um, he knows what's going on, and you, you know, you kind of alluded to it when you said it. You know, when he, when once he explains to whoever writes Black Adam next, hey, this is what I was doing. There's probably a lot more. Um, he can just be a his writing style can be a bit obtuse at times. That's mm-hmm. basically what I'm saying. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Batman, Superman, World's Finest, issue number 14. This is chapter two of Manhunt, written by Mark Wade. Dan Mora is the artist, Tamra Bonvalon on colors, and Steve Wands on letters. What do you think, Rock? How are you enjoying this? Uh, I thought I enjoyed this, yeah. It, it was it was fun. Uh, Mark Wade, I think, did a good job here. And I want to give a shout out to some of the variant covers. I actually thought the variant covers were... I, I quite enjoyed a lot of the variant covers. They were they were a lot of fun. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Simon DeMeo, but uh, even that is one of his better covers. So shout out to the variant covers as well, despite my usual rant against them. Um, the 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 Simon Stagg, uh, Batman. The last issue had Batman suspecting that Metamorpho uh, was uh, the, a prime suspect for the murder of Simon Stagg, but Simon Stagg is another billionaire, just like Bruce Wayne. Uh, only and but. Thanks to Jimmy Olsen, a really diehard reporter at the Daily Planet, Jimmy Olsen concludes and uh, provides evidence to the uh, authorities that Bruce Wayne is the one who's the likely suspect of killing uh, Simon Stagg. And the investigation here continues and uh, starts off with a conversation between Batman and Superman. And, you know, Batman's quite upset, but at the same time, he understands, you know, as Superman explains, Jimmy Olsen is doing his job. He can't blow his cover. He's got his secret identity. And what I really like here is how Mark Waid incorporates other aspects of the DC universe, because as as Clark Kent is, uh, uh, or Superman is, is investigating with with Robin because he can't he can't really work with Batman because Batman's got a you know Batman's doing his other things as as Bruce Wayne Bruce Wayne has some communications with Oliver Queen with with uh, all the other billionaires in the DC universe Bruce Wayne ends up talking to most of them but they uh, he discovers and I like how Mark Wade pens it there's there's a great scene between Bruce Wayne and Oliver Queen where Oliver Queen talks about he wants to create an AI and he doesn't sound Oliver Queen is a die-hard liberal, 
<laughs> and uh, Oliver Queen is not sounding like the idea of, uh, you know, financing, asking Bruce Wayne to come in on financing and artificial intelligence. It doesn't sound like something that Oliver Queen would do. And so it sound, it seems off to to uh, Bruce Wayne. It just seems off. And he, he concludes, Bruce Wayne concludes the same things uh, when he talks to Blue Beetle and he talks to Ted Cord and he talks to other billionaire philanthropists. That, so somebody has apparently taken all these billionaires off the playing field, while at the same time, uh, Superman and uh, Robin, uh, through their own investigations, they end up uh, they end up in, uh, t- finding themselves in the lair of um, uh, the metal men. What's the uh, the lair of uh, Professor? I, Bill I guess, Magus. Yeah, Bill Magus, right? Bill Magus. So for we well. we got. The, Metal men here, and then we got uh, the the bad guy is Ivo, who the the, the scientist who created uh, Ama- Amazo, or is it Amazo or Amazo? Amazo, yeah. Amazo, and so we're uh, it's pretty good stuff. We're gonna you know we're, we're incorporating we got <laughs> we're incorporating the metal men in this and uh, Amazo in this. And Professor Ivo, who's behind all this, who, P- Professor Ivo, who's been working behind the scenes trying to set up Metamorpho and and ultimately in, in trying to set up Metamorpho, he needed to duplicate, P- Professor Ivo needed to duplicate uh, Metamorpho's powers and he went one step further and he actually improved upon them so he could duplicate Kryptonite so he could be more of a force against Superman. So all of these things, you know, this is a prime example. If I was to compare uh, Mark Wade to Tom Taylor, what Mark Wade is doing better than Tom Taylor in my mind is Mark Wade is nailing the character work. He's doing the dialogue, but the plot is more sophisticated. The plot is more interesting. I'm more invested in the plot in World's Finest than I am in Nightwing because Mark Wade pulls me into the plot along with great dialogue and rapport between the characters. That's the difference. Now, Tom Tom Taylor might be a little better at maybe nailing some of those deep character moments, but I get too much, almost too much character work at the expense of the plot. Whereas Mark Wade here, Mark Wade, the reason why he's he's bringing his A game because Mark Wade continues to nail the balance between the plot and the character work, and it really bodes well here for this. And what what he's doing such a great job is, you know, we're getting we're getting. I mean, what a great thing to see Superman teamed up with Robin, as, and and then Batman's doing his own thing, and the, you know, talking with uh, other heroes of the. I mean. Look at how much of the DC universe Mark Wade has incorporated in this issue alone. And for longtime readers like us, it, it this feels like home to me. It just it feels like the, more like the DC universe than any other DC title, and that's what works so well. And it's, uh, it's as an interesting side note. It's it's I don't know why it's an open question why World's Finest doesn't seem to sell as well. It's it doesn't seem to sell as well as some other DC titles because it's ranking in the 50 to 60s and which is surprising to me that this doesn't rank higher on the sales charts because uh, I've never I haven't encountered anybody that dislikes this title but uh, in any event I thought this was really good definitely one of my favorites of the week what about yourself yeah I'm not enjoying it as much as you uh, part of the reason because I, and you know all credit to Mark Wade the guy's a fantastic writer and he's mining a lot of uh classic DC history here and, and has been throughout the, the whole run. When I see the world, the words world's finest, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to get Batman and Superman and 
a big chunk of the story is going to be dedicated to the dynamic between the two. And it's not that we don't get some of that, but I just feel like in a classic world's finest, we're going to get a little, little more. Uh, and we haven't gotten that in the beginning. We had so many other people in the book, you know, we had Robin, we had Supergirl, uh, we had uh, Doom Patrol. And again, it's Mark Wade mining the, the rich history of the DCU, and that's a good thing. But for World's Finest, I, I don't know, I guess I j would just hope for a little bit more one-on-one -on -one time with, with uh, Clark and Bruce. And we're, we're getting less of that one than I would like. Now, I know that's just a personal preference um, because it, the actual story here, this idea of uh, Professor Ivo – um, kidnapping billionaires for you know nefarious purposes is again a very classic DC idea. Replacing Oliver Queen, replacing these other billionaires—that's just a lot of fun. Whether we'll see Amazo, I mean, gotta expect that we will. Uh, just based on the uh, Professor Ivo's you know history with him, so Amazo is very powerful and definitely a threat even to Superman, as he has all the powers of the Justice League. So looking forward to that. Uh, also looking forward to getting a chance to see the metal men. So, um, you know, it may sound sort of hypocritical, right? I'm on one hand, I'm complaining. I don't get enough just Superman and Batman, but it is fun to see these other DC characters that don't get used very often. Right. I mean, I was, I've talked about that the last couple of weeks about how it feels like DC is putting out too much content, but yet they have all these characters, Firestorm, Aquaman, uh, Green Lantern currently that don't even have their own titles. So, uh, at least Mark Wade is, you know, is trying to remedy that, and it's an easy solution: put out less Batman stuff, and then you you will have room for these other uh, characters. So I am looking forward to seeing the Metal Men. I am looking forward to seeing Amazo and Professor Ivo and all that sort of stuff, and um, the dynamic here, the mystery of of who's behind it. I almost thought when they, you know, the point of the story where Superman realizes that it wasn't Stag, that Stag himself was going to be behind it. Having faked his own death, turns out it's uh, it's Professor Ivo. So we'll have to see how that all plays out. We'll have to see um, how Bruce Wayne, Batman, is going to clear his name. And uh, we'll have to see if Superman is able to save the uh, – or Batman – Who who is it that went – because they split up, right? It's – yeah, it's Batman and Metamorpho that went to Will Magnus's lab. Um, yeah. And we see the Metal Man and they're, they're – the way that – Professor Ivo stopped the metal men from, or, or was able to subdue the metal men and, and, and then capture uh, Will Magnus and force him to make these billionaire, billionaire Android uh, replicas is he, he put each of the metal men in a smelting vat, right. And melted them down to their, you know, liquid <laughs> form. So they can't, they have no substance. Basically they have no bodies. They're all melted. So uh, I imagine Batman and Metamorpho will figure out how to free them and then it'll be all out against um, a new version of uh, Amazo along with um, with Metamorpho, apparently, who's also under the control of uh, Professor Ivo and not just transforming into Earth elements, but transforming into Kryptonite. So an actual threat to, uh, to Superman. So again, Mark Wade just showing his knowledge and his uh, mastery of, uh, of the DCU give us something new, give us an actual credible threat to Superman, like a metamorpho that can transform himself partially into kryptonite. Yeah. That's a big threat to Superman. So um, really interesting take. Uh, all right. Up next, we have deceased war of the undead gods. Number eight. This is the final issue. 
um, of the series and supposedly the final issue of this big story that's taking place over, I think, four or five years now. Um, these deceased storylines, different part of the DC multiverse that Tom Taylor's been playing in. So written by Taylor, as I mentioned, pencils by Trevor Hairsign and Lucas Meyer, inks by Andy Lanning and Lucas Meyer, colors by Rain Barreto, and letters by Seda Timofante. Uh, so was it a satisfying conclusion, Rocky? What'd you think? I have to say it was. I, I don't think this is going to surprise anyone, uh, but I was I was surprised. I didn't think it was going to be as good uh, as it was uh, because I thought maybe the bloom was off the Taylor Rose a little bit. But I was I was wrong, at least for me. I thought this I thought this ending was very satisfactory. Now, it has all the Taylorisms that you can imagine. <laughs> He's become his own adjective at this point. Really great character work. Uh, ultimately. They have to defeat Erebos, who is the, basically the embodiment of death. And he is the, they have to find some way. Damian Wayne needs to figure out a way with the help of the Black Racer, how to access the world where Erebus is in. But the only way to access and gain access to Erebus is to die. And so there is just, a, you know, interspersed with just umpteen character moments where where Supergirl meets her, you know, Supergirl meets her, meets up with her parents. She meets Cal for the first time and realizes that Cal is not a baby anymore because this was a Supergirl that was just rocketed to Earth and she, before, she, when she got to Earth, she became part of the anti-life uh, zombies and and then we got, we got uh, so many great moments between uh, even uh, Big Barda and Scott Free and their son Jacob. There's a reunite re reunion there, and great conversation between Damian Wayne and Black Racer. Damian wants to figure out a way to bring, you know, to essentially defeat Erebus, and they come up with a plan. And it's I actually I really enjoy this. This is actually I enjoyed the plot here. You know, I I know I just finished kind of you know. Complaining a little bit about Taylor's lack of thought into the plot, I thought this he did. I thought this was thought out very well. Uh, I loved I loved the character work here. I loved the plotting here. I mean, my God, you've got Ares, Darkseid, you've got all these heroes. Uh, just a, a fantastic, uh, uh, you know, collage of superheroes and supervillains that all have to work together, and they do. And in spectacular fashion, Darkseid and Ares battling Erebos, distracting him while Damien Wayne gets in there with the help of Cyborg. And within Cyborg is life. There's anti-life and the life equation is within Cyborg. Damien knows, knows that. And it involves a sacrifice here and all of and the sacrifice that is ultimately made by Damien, much to the chagrin of everyone watching, uh, everyone reading and but some it's it's it didn't feel tropey to me. It didn't feel even though it it, it made it, it made sense. Uh, there, there's a wonderful callback to an earlier issue where Damien has a conversation with Green Arrow, and Green Arrow is telling Damien actually prophesizes in unintentionally exactly what Damien the sacrifice that Damien ends up making. And there's also a, just a fantastic final moment with final words between John Kent and and Damien as he says goodbye to his friend. And it's just it's if you've been on this journey from the beginning of deceased until now, and if you're a fan of if you're a fan of the Super Sons, 
I, I suspect that there's going to be more than a few readers that might even shed a tear on this. I didn't shed a tear. I am, I am someone who is capable of crying when I read a comic book. I didn't shed a tear, but it did tug at my heart a bit with that, with the, the final scene between John and, and Damien and ultimately uh, defeating, defeating uh, Erebus and with uh, John gifting in his final moments before the final battle, gifting Damien with uh, a bat suit that was white he that he wasn't the dark knight he really is the white knight and it's very appropriate because they're battling death and what who better to battle death than the son of batman wearing a white knight uh, uh costume and it's just very appropriate and i don't know maybe maybe some people will find this tropey and but i i just thought it was it worked for me. I, I thought that, that the panel, hair scenes are is fantastic. He's on the top of the game here. When hair scenes started off as the artist, when DC's first began, it was a little wonky. The line work was a little, maybe blotchy here and there, but it, it, it fit, it fits the narrative. It fits the, the, the terror filled, horror filled darkness of this story. But you can see the lightness in here and, and, and the hope and the heroism shine through in, in this final chapter leading to the defeat of Erebus. And just, uh, I'm just, uh, you know, this was absolutely, for me, this was my favorite issue out of all of them. And it's not always the case that the final issue of a series is the best one. But for me, this was a really good one. Uh, so many moments that one could talk about. I, I won't. I won't ruin. I won't spoil all of them. But everybody, uh, I'll say this: even if you you haven't bought issues one through seven, you can buy this and get the gist of it. Because this is almost a standalone. All you need to know when you when you open this up is that they're battling death. That's all you need to know when you open up issue eight here, and it kind of speaks for itself. The narrative. It's very well done, and I, I I was really impressed with this. What about yourself? Yeah, I did shed some tears. <laughs> I was in the Greenville <laughs> Airport of all places, and I'm wiping my eyes when people are giving me a sideways <laughs> look. You know, you guys were crying reading the comic. Because, um, you know, it, it's no secret I haven't been the biggest fan of, of Damian Wayne as a character, but in the hands of Tom Taylor, this, this older Damian uh, has – he's – he's matured in the, in the right sort of way. I certainly hope that Damien in the, the main DC universe, you know, follows this path um, as opposed to the hints of him becoming some sort of despot or um, Machiavellian type of, uh, of, of character. Um, but this was just fantastic. The, the, the moment, as you alluded to between uh, Damien and, and John, um, it's just, it was so emotional. It was so, satisfying of a conclusion the moments with alfred who's now the specter which i think is just an inspired story choice alfred this old guy who in this uh portion of the dc multiverse is, has lost all his sons right he lost bruce uh he lost damien uh he lost dick right didn't dick die as well uh, in this so yeah he feels sort of lost yeah he, out he outlived them all um unfortunately so uh and also the characterization that tom taylor gives to characters that we don't see as often like aries or lobo or dark side guy gardner i mean at, at one point the, you know this arrogant dark side who's now on on the side of the heroes going up against erebos because that, that was a thing like similar to what i was saying uh with that backup in nightwing how it feels like it could have ended an issue sooner this felt like it could have ended when they defeated dark side right last issue yeah. it's sort of 
okay, you've solved the big problem with the help of uh, Alfred as Spectre. Now it's almost, is this going to feel like a, a prologue? Is it going to feel like the story dragged on too long, going up against Erebos? Turns out, no, that's not the case. Um, but it did give some fantastic uh, moments uh, with Lobo in particular when he's talking about um, Ares, you know, how Ares doesn't do anything. They want Ares to, to join with Darkseid to go. They've got this three-pronged plan that, as Rocky alluded to, they're going to go and attack uh, Erebus, but they need uh, somebody to distract him so they can crack him open, and then that will allow the, these heroes to take the Doom Tube inside. Um, and th they need Ares. They need his power. And he's, ah, you know, I don't really want to get involved. I'm not suicidal. I'm trying to tell him, well, this is going to be the end of all existence if you don't help and what have you. And yeah, Lobo said, hey, he's probably just planning on watching. That's what he always does. He's more like the creepy stalker of war than the god of it. That had me like that had me laughing out loud uh, while I was reading this. Just such a great line, such wonderful humor from Tom Taylor. And then you know, later on in the issue, he's got me in tears. So uh, it's just really emotional. It really was such a satisfying conclusion to this epic story that Tom Taylor has been telling. Um, and as Rocky said, that's not always the case, right? Sometimes the journey ends up being more enjoyable than, uh, you know, than the final destination where you end up. And that's not the case here. I think they're, they're equal. I mean, I, I mean, all the moments, all the things that Taylor got to do, partly because this isn't in the main DC continuity and he got to have the impact of killing main characters that actually stayed dead in this version. Um, like he does here with Damien sacrificing himself, uh, but it allows him to, to tug at the heartstrings or, to fill, um, fill us with, you know, laughter and show us how much we care about these characters. And I, I just can't say enough about how fantastic this series has been. And it's one of those series. It's one of those, you know, corners of the DC universe, if you will, that feels like it is, was perfectly set up in the hands of Taylor as a writer, but also hair scene as an artist, as Rocky uh, mentioned. Um, he drew almost all of it. I think there were some other of the, I think the, one of the digital first series that was in DC's was drawn by Carl Mostert, who has a little bit of a similar style in that he uses very fine lines, uh, very fine line weights. But for the most part, the, the you know the print first versions of these stories were all Trevor Hairstein, and you know his style, his look, because he does have a distinctive art style, will always be synonymous in, in my mind with this deceased story. Right, like I won't be able to think of deceased. Uh, and it's placed in the DCU without picturing Hairsign's art, rightly so. He did most of it, right? So, uh, and his art style was perfectly suited for the the story that uh, the Tom Taylor wanted to to tell here. And so, you know, we're pretty harsh on DC editorial at times. Certainly, it feels like a rudderless ship uh, most recently. But you know, give him credit for picking a right the right writer and the right artist to come together to give us this fantastic story. And yeah, it, I mean, it was just. It, it absolutely blew me away. And I think as we've gotten down to these last final three issues of this overall deceased epic, each time I read one of these three issues, it got better and better. And it also made me think, man, I need to go back and do a big long reread and reread everything, you know, uh, much closer together because I read everything as it came out monthly. So sitting down and reading this, you know, over a weekend, let's say, I think it would be so 
great and so impactful and really enjoyable. So I'm looking forward to finding time to do that because uh, this just, it blew me away. It was so good. Um, uh, just fantastic work by, uh, by Tom Taylor. I think a lot of people are going to be talking about this um, on social media and what have you when, uh, when it drops tomorrow or today as you're listening to this or what have you. So, and I just, I just uh, want to say, I just want to say one okay. thing that, that part of the reasons why that I've been generally dissatisfied with DC overall is, uh, is, has, is no fault of DC. It's, it's, I, I have a strong desire to see these characters evolve and get older. Uh, th there is a part of me that does want that. And I say that with some degree of irony because I, as a, as an older reader, I like to see a lot of these, you know, dawn of the DCU, they're retelling the same stories that we've gotten over and over and over and over again, just for a new generation. And I respect that, but I'm older school. So I kind of, these feel like genuinely fresh stories and perhaps it's no surprise that they're out of continuity, but deceased feels like these characters are actually evolving. There was actual consequence and I just, I'm so satisfied with it. And I really hope that it, you know, it, it says the end. It, it actually says the end. It doesn't say to be continued on the final page of deceased i want this to continue uh, and i should say that there are some references to this universe where the deceased takes place and i would love future stories taking place in the deceased universe but i wish it would have a different name because i don't want them to battle deceased beings anymore i just i would just like to see future stories set in this universe where they can evolve these characters and not have to worry necessarily about you know checking off some boxes and worrying about doing everything a particular way or worry about not killing the off this character. We can have stories with actual consequences. So who's Batman? Who's Batman? Well, if it that, that's a good question. So that, that would be kind of cool. You know, who is, who would be the next Batman in this world? Now that might be a good future story for a Tom Taylor to tell in this universe. Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, if he, if he would be the one, though, or if they would, he, he's kind of like, I'm done with that universe. Uh, let somebody else play in it for a while. Because here's the other thing. It doesn't have to be, I mean, because I would welcome more uh, stories in this uh, multi part of the DC multiverse as well. It doesn't necessarily have to be going forward, though. There's plenty of stories that could be told, um, you know, in the in the context of, uh, of what we've seen, you know. It's, it's not like in those miniseries that, that Taylor gave us, we saw everything right there was no way f for him to cover everything uh, even though he covered a lot um but yeah would be interesting to uh to think about uh all right up next we have dc silent tales this is a collection of six silent comics written and illustrated by gustavo duarte uh who is a, a very talented cartoonist so there's six stories in here and and as it says um it is silent none of them have any words well, we have Harley Quinn in Hammer Time. We have Cyborg in Long Play, Superman in Bugs, Zatanna in Mr. Crowley, Joker in Gotham Gothic, and Lobo in Suckers. Um, so, yeah, I'll let you kick it off, Rocky. Any, any that you want to talk about or that stood out was your favorite? Uh, uh, not really. Well, uh they're all really, really good. I it's funny because I I will I will definitely be picking this up. I I'm a sucker for DC animated. It sort of reminds me a lot of the, um, oh man, was it was it DC? Was it the Microverse? There was like the Mini Mites or the Mini Teen Titans, Mini Mini Titans series. I I got I got that I got all those little like 
sort of children's DC comics back in the day. And, and, and this sort of, this is the sort of humor comic book that I just love. Uh, it's just good humor. And this really brings up the, the skill of the, the artist to tell a story based solely upon just, just the pictures. And I mean, they're just, it's entertaining. It's actually to sort of sit back and, you know, there's a habit that a lot of people have and obviously we have it as readers that it's funny because we get so used to dialogue and I know for myself that I often when I'm skim reading a comic I'm actually skim reading the comic and sometimes I miss and I fail to appreciate the art because I'm reading the comic so I'm reading the dialogue and you know I I do now I do appreciate good art but I don't always see it at first glance because I'm reading the words and often part of the things when we read so many comics I am guilty of missing some really good art because I'm reading the dialogue and what's great about Silent Tales is that no this is meant to sit back and you enjoy the pages uh, I mean everything from I mean the level of detail here on the surface might not be a lot of detail but there's a lot from the expressions to the uh to all the character work and you can imagine what the, you have to imagine what the characters are thinking and you shouldn't have to imagine much because the art should tell you that and that's the true challenge and it it really works well if i had to pick a favorite i'd probably go with the cyborg one with long play i just it, it sort of caught me off guard and i just I just like that. I, I, blue is, I, li I like the color scheme. I like the light blue. I like Gizmo showing up. I think that's, I think that's Gizmo from the, from the Teen Titans series. <laughs> and he battles Cyborg and they're, uh, it, it's, it's funny. It reminded me of more of a, like a Looney Tunes sort of thing with uh, the Bugs Bunny or the Wild Coyote. And in, in any event, um, Superman Bugs is pretty good too. They're all funny. This is, for me, I'm, I want to reward this. I'm going to buy this because I'm just, I, Gustavo Duarte, I'm not, uh, I'm, I've heard of him before. I've probably seen his art before, but I want to reward this because this is the type of work that I, I actually like, I appreciate DC for putting this out because this is the type of stuff that I think can entertain a lot of people and uh, be interesting to see the demographic that, that most enjoys this kind of work because I really enjoy it and I wonder if a younger, younger crowd would as well in the young adult section of your chapters uh or cole's bookstore uh but uh what do you think of it yeah I, I mean i loved it as well um not necessarily for the, the stories themselves as you mentioned they are they're humorous and there's you know sight gags and what have you and it's sort of how, what you have to rely on when you're not using any dialogue um but just the aesthetic right like gustavo duarte's art his line work, obviously the storytelling is strong and there's no words here, but it's just fun. You know, you mentioned the Easter eggs and, you know, him capturing the essence of these characters, again, with no dialogue. The Lobo story is, a, you know, a perfect example. He's going up against vampire Nazis, which we saw recently in, uh, in the Sergeant Rock story. Um, and he, he pulls no punches, but yet it still feels uh, pretty much kid friendly. Uh, you know, it's not gory by any, by any means. It's you know no worse than you'd see in your typical cartoon uh in terms of violence so it's just fun um if i had to pick a favorite i mean I, I wouldn't have thought this would be my favorite just based on the character but probably the harley quinn story was probably my my favorite it's so interesting she walks into a hardware store buys all the uh buys spends money pays for all the parts <laughs> she needs to build a, a mallet you know her big red and black mallet red white and black mallet i guess you'd say that we're all used to seeing her 
wield and then proceeds to break back into said hardware store through the front window, goes crashing in, bashes the uh, cash register, steals all the money, but still leaves the amount there to pay for the, the stuff, the supplies she bought to make her hammer. So absolutely, uh, you know, as insane as you would expect something, uh, somebody like Harley to do. So just, just fantastic. I mean, more than anything, um, just the aesthetic, the style of artwork, uh, and the strength of the storytelling, just really, really fun. I mean, doing these kind of things, um, is how you get new comic readers, right? Again, I said it, it very much all ages friendly, even for a kid who can't read yet, right? You can follow along, you can understand because it's all just pictures and that's how you pull somebody in. And then maybe the next comic they buy does have words, right? Um, and you you build a readership like that. So uh, interesting enough, probably my least favorite was the Superman story. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought that one was kind of kind of wonky like i didn't understand the sequence right at the end where he it's so funny i was just gonna ask you i don't i didn't quite understand the sequence either i didn't understand i didn't understand the the part yeah i get the rest of it yeah he he fought this radioactive bug that some mad scientist looks like it's lex luther probably yeah Lex Luthor infected this like giant cockroach with this radioactive substance and he grew to a you know huge huge size Superman fights him, gets the radioactive goo all over his costume uh, and throws his costume in the washing machine. And unbeknownst to him, a worm from an apple gets inside the washing machine as well. And so then later that worm infected with this radioactive substance also grows to a giant size and he has to go and fight it. Okay. Well, that's explained at the end. Okay. That's what that is at the end. Okay. Yeah. So that's what the the worm, but what's not explained is, so at the very end, the last page, he's sitting, he's, you know, not in his costume. He's sitting in his Clark Kent guys. He's reading the daily planet says bugs in Metropolis and he's eating cereal called smart brains. And he eats the cereal apparently with in a bowl with milk and then eats the last bits of cereal out of the directly out of the box and then throws the box away. And I was like, I didn't get like, is that a hint that now, much like the bug, uh, the worm that was in the apple got uh, mutated. Superman's going to get mutated by this smart brain cereal. Is that what's being hinted at? I, I have no idea. Um, so I, I, I looked at that over and over. And so I was reading this on the plane or, you know, reading, no words, but I'm, I'm reading on the plane and I was getting really tired. Um, and I started getting sleepy and, and I was like, am I not understanding because I'm tired? I put it away and came back to it later. Uh, when I got home and I was like, no, I still don't understand. I still, I still can't make any yeah. sense of it, but it's a minor quibble. <laughs> it's still good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The art is fantastic. Zatanna and her bunny are, uh, are great. Uh, Rocky alluded to the cyborg story with, uh, with Gizmo as the villain. Um, the Joker story is even funny. Uh, so yeah, I highly, highly recommend it, especially if you have little ones who are interested in, in comics, maybe aren't the strongest readers. Um, this is just fantastic. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Catwoman, issue number 54, Rise and Revenge, part four from Tinny Howard. Nico Leone on art, Veronica Gandini on colors, Lucas Catoni on letters. Um, I continue to be, I don't want to say disappointed, but the art here, it just isn't as strong. Like I, I keep going back to when this first started, this Tinny Howard run first started, and how uh, Nico Leone gave us all those uh, 
neon colors, all the pinks and purples, and it was so dynamic and, and looked so slick, and it almost had like a, a crime noir, Miami Vice type feel. And this just doesn't have that same oomph to the art. And not that the art is bad. I really enjoy uh, the storytelling and, and what Nico chooses to show us, especially because a, a lot of this issue is sort of a talking heads issue, but he keeps it visually interesting. Sometimes uh, we're not even, we don't even see the characters faces when they're talking, we're looking at their, their feet, uh, which is so interesting. Um, and again, keeping it uh, visually stimulating, but, yeah, it does lack a little something. And again, maybe it's because it's a somewhat of a top issue and a bit of a setup. Um, but it's felt like that for a few issues now where we just haven't gotten that same dynamic feel uh, of the art. But as far as the story goes, it's it's interesting enough. I know uh, Tinny Howard herself told me we're building something really huge. Um, I like that Punchline shows up here actually for once because we're be getting hints that Punchline may be evolving somewhat. Like Selena even offers to, to sort of partner up with her. And I got to believe that Selena is not about to partner up with Punchline, but seems to possibly be setting her up for something, uh, which I, again, I like. And it's not just a two-dimensional type Punchline. She is finally evolving as a character, or at least seems to be evolving as a character. So jury's still out for me on how much I'm going, going to like this. Um, but I will say one thing, I was a little critical of Tinny early on with the pacing. It felt like she was trying to cram too much story in it and it was feeling choppy. Um, and those things seem to be have been ironed out. Um, but I'm definitely ready to see what the big payoff is for this story and see where uh, it goes next. So we'll have to wait and see for that, I guess. What are your thoughts? I'm, I'm still trying to get a handle on this, uh, this whole storyline. I, you know, it's funny, a, a shout out to uh, Tristan at Nerdette's Newsstand. I know that she really, she's really been enjoying Teeny Howard's run. And I, I can appreciate where she's coming from. There, There is something about, I, I you know, if I want to say something, you know, <clears throat> focusing on the positive here, I do like the fact that, that Selena definitely does have her own voice here. I kind of like the fact that she's sort of spreading her wings a bit. She, she does, she seems to have an agenda while she's in prison and yet, I'm not really sure what that is. I thought at first I thought it was because she wanted to create her own gang of of uh, other thieves that would join her on the outside, and that kind of seems what it is. Tini, uh, I, I I'm thinking that. I'm, I'm thinking that Selena is building up sort of her own kind of cool gang, so to speak. Like uh, I jokingly said at a live stream yesterday that this is sort of like the cat litter gang or something. You know, it's like she's got her own, her, this marquee character that uh, Selena uh, is befriended in prison. They get, uh, you know, they're, they even sort of flirt with each other a little bit. She's kind of a cool character. So I like I like the, the, the cellmates. I really like Selena's cellmates here. Now, the... Some of the wonkiness of it with the with being able to smuggle in all the food with the cat through the vents, that doesn't really make some of that didn't really doesn't possess a lot of verisimilitude for me or the, they seem to be able to work out and the guards never see them and they you know they seem to be able to have all kinds of things throughout the prison but I can I can let that go if it's in service of a larger story I just I'm really not getting any idea exactly what that larger story might be now you did hint at it 
you know, the Royal Flush Gang ended up being sent to prison uh, because they they were they were basically caught, and so they get sent to prison, and so they they still work for for Punchline, and Punchline's going to prison ostensibly to to kill Selena, and the Royal Flush Gang is there in prison, and they don't know they don't know which prisoner is Catwoman, which is really surprising. I don't know I don't know how they don't know. I mean, yeah, how, I everybody, everybody knew. how how, how can pe- how can people Kyle not know that Selena yeah. Kyle is Catwoman? Yeah. She was sent to prison. I, I don't get that. That doesn't make any sense to me. That's not explained. And but I I do like the idea that okay now if Selena Kyle is going to break out of prison instead of getting instead of taking down Punchline, is she setting her up? I I would hope so. I mean, Punchline needs to get have the shit kicked out of her. But okay, Selena is maybe she wants to create a more she wants to set Punchline up for a, a, a more of a significant kind of revenge because she wants Punchline to end up in prison maybe. And Punchline was found not guilty. They don't have what are they going to arrest Punchline for? Well, I would have thought that's fairly obvious given that uh, given the explosion, given the circumstances surrounding the death of Valmont. Why is Selena still in prison? Why is Selena breaking out of prison when she doesn't need to? Her lawyer could get her off. Her, her the investigative report, the investigate the investigator actually told Selena that we know you didn't do it. So why did you confess? Why don't you let us do our job and come out of prison? I don't know the answers to this. What is what is Catwoman? What is Selena doing? I, I don't know why she's doing all this. She wants to set up and create her own mafia. She's already got one. She's got Iko Hasegawa, who is the the new Catwoman while she's in prison. So Catwoman already has influence with the mafia if she really wants it. So I, I don't really know where this is going. And I have too many questions that are... Um, normally, I could get excited about this, but Teeny Howard isn't really making it clear to me where, what direction we're going here. But I'm prepared to be... At some point, maybe this will all come together. But right now, this feels like a bunch. This feels like a jigsaw puzzle, and it's not entirely clear to me that I have all the pieces to it yet, and and or that I'm not even sure if all the pieces are even on the board yet. I get the sense that maybe Selena has a plan, but it seems like a really stupid one. She, Selena really comes across as someone who hasn't thought this through. This uh, even Batman comes across as stupid as if as uh, or does he know what Selena's up to but everything about this the way it's been executed just doesn't really sit well uh however I can see it heading somewhere I think and you know maybe this is something where this this master plan that Selena might have might begin to take shape I hope it's a master plan because right now this seems to be all over the place and I really wish this would start to come together soon because it's not it's not quite it's not really quite hitting for me at this time. But uh, I'm, you know, I'm 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 prepared to uh, give it the benefit of the doubt. It's it's definitely better than Joelle Jones on Catwoman. I'll tell you that. Uh, whereas at least this feels like maybe it's headed in a certain direction. But we'll have to wait and see. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I think that. Um... Yeah, we don't have all the puzzle pieces yet, and and how successful this is, you know, it, it may it may just depend on on how much you buy into the the ending that we're going to get, and and I don't necessarily mean that the ending of the of this particular arc, but the the ending of of Tinny's run, because I think overall it's been a little uneven uh, at the end of the day. So, uh, all right, Superman, the Man of Tomorrow, number one. Uh, Rocky alluded to it earlier. You mean Superboy? 
Super, yeah, Superboy. Did I say Superman? Yeah, Superboy. <laughs> uh, this is by Kenny Porter, who uh, won the DC Round Robin, as uh, as Rocky mentioned. The art and the color both are handled by Janoy Lindsay, and then we have Louis Gattoni on letters. So um, the art is okay for me. It's sort of a younger looking uh, Connor Kent that I'm I'm used to. He looks maybe twelve here, and I know he's supposed to be you know older than that. Um, but for that matter, John Kent and Supergirl look. Uh, younger as well. So it's just kind of, kind of a younger uh, aesthetic. Um, so the art for me was only okay, but I really did love the idea. I love the story um, because we've, we've talked about it before. We talked about it when we covered the recent young justice series, how this generation, whether it be Bart Allen or Cassandra Sandsmark um, or uh, Cassandra Kane to some extent, certainly uh, Bart Allen impulse and John Kent have sort of become redundant, right? They've sort of been replaced by yet another generation. We still have the first generation of heroes, the iconic ones that we know. And so where do those heroes that came around in the 90s, Tim Drake Robin is another, um, where do, where's their place, right? Are they just forgotten because we now have, you know, new younger kids, um, which is just one more reason why DC should have never aged up John Kent, not to, you know, beat that dead horse. Um, but anyway, it's an interesting premise that Kenny Porter takes on, right? Because here's Connor Kent back in the main DCU, you know, back in the reality, he, he says himself, you know, he, a reality that he didn't exist and everybody has sort of forgotten him. Now he's back and he doesn't have a place in it. Every time he tries to go and help out, John Kent's got it under control or, uh, or Supergirl's got it under control or any number of people. He goes to, you know, he's talking this over with Ma and Pa Kent, who he's living with, and they say, well, you just have to find your place. You know, Clark didn't know exactly where his place in the world was until he, you know, moved to Metropolis. And now, you know, you have to find your Metropolis. So he goes to the uh, Fortress of Solitude. He enlists the help of uh, Kelex to, to find out. He's like, okay, show me all the distress calls, you know, all across the earth. You know, where, where am I needed? And everywhere he looks, whether it's... Um, Superman and John and Supergirl fighting uh, Chemo or the Flash and Batman and Green Arrow fighting Gorilla Grodd or uh, the rest of the, the Young Justice, Cassie Sandsmark, Tim Drake, Impulse taking on Felix Faust in Paris, France. He's just like, everywhere I look, my friends have it covered. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not needed here. So he decides, hey, show me all the distress signals in the galaxy. Uh, show me where the you know, I'm, I'm needed the most, basically. He wants to feel needed. He wants to feel like he can make a difference. And when he finds out it's far, far away, he says, okay, what kind of uh, starship is there in storage or teleporter? And Kelix tells him about this unstable teleportation bracelet that came from a coon bounty hunter. And he says how unstable, it's highly unstable. And uh, that's not what Connor hears, right? He's like, oh, perfect. That means n n no one will miss it if I take it, right? It's too dangerous to be used, right? So nobody will miss it. I I'm happy to, to take ownership of it. And he teleports himself off to this planet where uh, the Dominators are uh, attacking and takes them on and come to find out these Dominators uh, are more powerful than he possibly expected because these uh, Dominators have been taking DNA and genetic material from different uh, superpower beings all across the, the galaxy and uh, and splicing them together to make these really powerful uh, villains that Connor, uh, Connor has to fight. And he's being overwhelmed when all of a sudden, because he's not willing to use lethal force because he's Connor Kent, when all of a sudden these uh, genetic clones that the Dominators, these superpower genetic clones that the Dominators built 
are all taken out by somebody willing to use lethal force. And we find out on the last page or next to the last page that these, uh, this team that's willing to use lethal force are called the Cosmeteers. So it's a new hero group. Uh, spec speculator alert, I guess, if you want to, uh, to pick it up here, I guess would be considered a cameo uh, because they just appear on the final page. But who they are and what their abilities are, I guess we'll find out next issue. But I like the idea of taking Connor off of Earth where he is a bit redundant I and mean, he's not wrong to feel that way and putting him out in the larger galaxy to, to fight some intergalactic threats. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic job. I think the art shows best in its color work. The color work is, is really, really good. Um, the line work at times, um, is, a, is pretty so It's actually, it's pretty solid throughout. I should say, uh, the backgrounds probably at times are, are what feels a little unfinished, if you will. Um, which, you know, I suppose is okay. That's probably the, the look they're going for, but the, a lot of times the backgrounds seem out of focus or like they're these digital watercolors. It's just not the type of, of backgrounds that I, I enjoy basically. Um, but overall it's a intriguing start. I enjoyed the story. I enjoyed the scripting from Kenny Porter. Um, you know, he did the DC mech series that we covered recently. Uh, and this certainly starts off stronger than that did. Uh, so what do you think? Yeah, I, it's impressive. Uh, Kenny Porter's done a good job here. Uh, it was hard to, for us to judge DC Mac, even though we kind of enjoyed that series. We never, it's not like we, 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 we never did a deep dive into the plotting and the scripting of DC Mac because it was just kind of like DC Transformers, right? So, uh, but we, it, it did seem like a lot of fun. This is one where, uh, this is more of a test for Kenny Porter's uh, knowledge of the DC universe. And he understands, he understands Connor Kent. Uh, I like his use of the cl cloning technology. The fact that the, uh, you know, Connor Kent decides to go to a planet that's being invaded by, by, by basically a, a dominator is, is controlling things. And is sort of like the general and the dominator is using cloning technology. And of course that attracts, the dominators attracted to, uh, Connor Kent because he's obviously a clone of Superman and, and, and Lex Luthor and so there is obviously they have an interest in, in that so right away we got ties into Connor Kent's past and for those of us that you know, know something about Connor Kent's past we, we get those little implied references back and it's good to see and it's there's a lot of action here there's a lot of action I like the, I really like the color work and I will uh, I uh, I actually don't mind the background. You say the faded background, the digital background. I think it kind of works here only because for me, I, vi I imagine this to be an alien world and that the alien skies, it was, that was either pink or kind of an off green or an off blue. And it sort of, it sort of worked for me. It, to me, it sort of fit the story the way, the way I was reading it. And I thought it was very, I thought it was very well done. It was action packed. It was visceral. And Connor Kent is just not messing around. And at the end here, when these Cosmeteers show up, we don't know anything about them, but they actually look cool. They actually look cool. Uh, one looks to be the same race as one of the Green Lanterns, whose name uh, eludes me. Uh, and I'm not sure if these Cosmeteers are good guys or bad guys. Are they going to be future good guys, future bad? I don't know. But I love the name Cosmeteers. I don't know if that name's ever been used before. Uh, to my knowledge, uh, I, I to my knowledge, I think that's the first I've heard of Cosmeteers in the DC universe. But somebody out there can correct me. Uh, I'll have to Google it later. But I'm really intrigued by this and, uh, I, you know, hey, I was, I had my doubts about this series. I'm not going to lie, 
But, you know, good for Kenny Porter. I'm looking forward to next issue. Uh, this is actually a nice self-contained issue. And, and like you, I 100% agree. Get him off Earth. Get him away from the other members of the Superman family. Let him out of his own adventures. And let's have some fun. And so this this pulls me in. Uh, a pleasant, one of the most pleasant surprises this week by far. Yeah, I mean, I've never been, I never read his solo series. Um, you know, my, I was so surprised when, he, he became this beloved character in the hands of Jeff Johns. Um, because for me, you know, being exposed to him when he was one of the four replacements for, uh, after the death of Superman in 92, he was, came across as kind of this arrogant punk that, you know, it wasn't really that likable. Uh, and so I never picked up his solo series, but you know, he had enough fans that he got a solo series. I mean, so did steel for that matter. Um, and then obviously the other two ended up being bad guys, Eradicator and, and Hank Henshaw, but uh, Cyborg Superman. But anyway, uh, yeah, it was, I think, really in the hands of Jeff Johns, making him a member of the Teen Titans, where he he really became beloved. Um, but yeah, it's he doesn't really have a spot uh, on Earth. So take him off Earth and give fans of Connor Kent you know, a chance to see him do his thing. Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Flash 797 as we head towards Jeremy Adams' final issue with 800. He is the writer. We have art by Serge Acuna for pages 1 through 14 and Tom Dernick for pages 15 through 20. Colors by Matt Herms and Peter uh, Pantazis. Letters by Dave Sharp. This story takes place during the end of the Flash 2022 annual. That's the annual where um, Linda is sharing her uh, romance novel that she wrote with Wally as they go on a date. And we know that Ace or uh, Wallace West was charged with babysitting the the twins. And now we find out exactly what happened uh, that night where he's babysitting the uh, twins along with uh, Maxine uh, Baker, Buddy Baker's daughter, Animal Man's daughter, um, were kidnapped, I guess you'd say, taken to an, another dimension by these evil kids. Uh, this guy named Knives calls him uh he's there to put the end of super kids <laughs> knives maroney <laughs> yeah knives maroney this uh <laughs> evil guy who has uh, has found this um uh, piece of something called the eternity mine which allows him to basically it's almost like a an x deus machina device right like a machine that yeah. a, a genie lamp if you will where he can just wish for anything and it, and it gives him that and he's got his own supervillain team dr nightmare reverse grod who seems to be a mashup of reverse flash and gorilla grod Mineral Man, who seems to be sort of a mineral version of Animal Man. And then Foul Play, who's like an evil version of uh, Fair Play, Mr. Terrific. And then Heat Wave Jr., for lack of a better term, looks like a live wire. <laughs> you know, this like flame electrical type uh, super villainous. Uh, so he brings, and supposedly there are hints in the story. And again, I'm sure Jeremy Adams has this all fleshed out in his head, that these three, uh, the, the twins and Maxine Baker are going to become a member of a team called the Super Kids in the future. And they're going to put a stop to Knives Maroney and his uh, villainous band. And so, and there's going to be seven of them because Knives basically pulls them in, pulls these three in. And one of the other members says, well, wait, I thought there were seven of them that we're going to take out. And Knives is like, well, that's the point, right? We take them out when there's only three of them, and then we don't have to deal with all seven. So again, hints to uh, to the future. So they're vastly outnumbered and about to be attacked when all of a sudden who shows up? The Super Sons. And when I say Super Sons, I don't mean Damien and John. 
as we know them now, I mean the, the super sons, right? Like the beloved younger version of John Kent, you, you know, younger Damien, John, where he's still wearing the the sweatshirt and the the blue jeans as his costume and tennis shoes. And they team up and uh, along with Wallace, who then enlists the aid of Mr. Uh, terrific because he's like, man, I'm supposed to be babysitting. These kids disappeared while he's going to kill me. Um, so T- Mr. Terrific is able to find where the three uh, missing kids are in the multiverse and sends um, Kid Flash after them. And they all team up and to make a long story short. They end up defeating these uh, these villains and sending them back to, w- to wherever they belong. And then themselves return home, realizing, oh, wait, we probably shouldn't have left that really powerful artifact that piece of the eternity mind behind but by the time they realize it it's too late and lo and behold who do we see walk up and pick it up but uh granny goodness who says uh she could use a new recruitment tool and it's to be continued so i imagine uh it'd probably be continued into 798 and 799 because 800 will probably be more of a standalone issue as a special anniversary but i would expect a couple more uh, issues along this vein with the piece of eternity mind and with um with these younger heroes having to go up against uh, Granny Goodness. So <laughs> what I do hope is that we see uh, we see this version of the Super Sons continue to team up with Jay and Irie and Maxine. Uh, and whether that's on Earth or on Apocalypse, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But leave it to Jeremy Adams, right? Uh, the guy knows what – because he's such a fan himself, uh, he knows what fans want. And what fans want clearly is this younger version of John Kent. So – here it is, everybody, the young version of John Kent, proof that that version still exists out there in the DC multiverse and stories can still be told with him. Yeah. Um, and yeah, whether or not right. DC allows somebody to do that or not, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, as far as the art goes, uh, yeah, it, it is a little inconsistent with the two different artists on it. I felt like the Serge Acuna art in the beginning of the issue, I, I preferred that to the Tom Dernick art. Um, just because the Dernick art, just it seems inconsistent in terms of anatomy at times it's sometimes the anatomy just looks off to me um the proportions aren't right so uh but overall uh, their styles are similar enough that it's not too jarring and I, I thought the color work was really strong as well so uh i mean i don't know that anybody can look at that full page splash of this younger damien this younger john kent uh with john saying the super sons are here to save the day like, any super sons fan is going to be just overjoyed to see that version of John Kent back and a, yeah. a story with the super starring the super sons. Um, yeah. Again, I, it might feel a little fan like fan service, but um, it works. It, it, Jeremy Adams continues to uh, do a fantastic job. What uh, this, what this issue should have been called. This should have been the first issue of young justice. That's what they should have been. Uh, that because uh, the, the young justice the, the whole point, and I've, I've said this before, and I thought this is two or three years ago, I thought that's where DC was going, was that they were leading toward a brand new Young Justice team. A Young Justice team. And this is, you, you call them super kids. No, this is the new Young Justice. You know, but well, they call we them super that, kids in the story. That's yeah, well, no, no, I, I realize that. But what, what, 
you know, and that's all well and good. I mean, it's, you know, call them what you want. I mean, the thing is, these characters are fantastic. This is the youth of the DC universe. And so take them out of their, you know, let them have adventures in the multiverse where they're this young, where, you know, call this a, call this a Super Sons team from another Earth and have this, these Super Kids team. Call them Young Justice. They're the new Young Justice. Get rid of all that, that garbage of Fitzmartin, my God. Uh, this is the new, the brand new Young Justice. That's what this is, or whatever. Call them super kids if you want, but this is fantastic. Jeremy Adams gets it. Uh, this was so much fun, as you said, and also this fits into the continuity of the Super Sons because this takes place. There was a scene there. There was a twelve-issue Super Sons series where they battled Rex <laughs> Rex Luther, <laughs> and and there there was a time where they were sort of hopping, skipping, and jump from d different multiverses, and we never saw all the universes that they jumped to. Well, now we know that this was one of them. So Jeremy Adams does a little bit of his own homework here and uh, and it works uh, because I, I know no editor helped him out on this uh, because you, the last thing you want to do if you're a writer at DC Comics is ask an editor for help uh, because you might get it. So, uh, you know, kudos to Jeremy Adams uh, for just writing a fantastic story and... Um, you know, the, the story, I mean, it's just, it just puts a joy in my face. And and I actually think he outdoes Jeff Johns on this. Then uh, the, this, I, I enjoyed this more than reading The Lost Stargirl and The Lost Children, which I'm enjoying Stargirl and The Lost Children, don't get me wrong. But Jeremy Adams, man, fantastic job. This is just plain fun. I wanted this, I you know, frankly, I wanted this to last longer than, than it is. I, I would have loved for this to last longer. There's character work here. There's action there's humor and and the, the way these kids get you know the way they interact with each other it's just it's just so well done and it's this is like adventures in babysitting of course uh, superhero style and it just works it just works and granny goodness at the end here my god i, I can't wait for the sequel but when are we gonna get one or is it gonna be next issue i don't know but even the way they coordinate at the end where they come up with a plan that working at super speed where where the minute that the eternity mine is activated by uh by <laughs> by the by the bad guy whose name what's his name again Knives, Knives Mahoney there or whatever. He activates the Eternity Mind and that's when all the hit, all the super speedsters, all, they all make a super wish. They all make a wish before Knives can make his wish. <laughs> it's, it's just funny. It's well done. And that just puts a smile on your face. And so, hey, uh, yeah. Well done, Jeremy. Well done. I mean, uh, give this guy, give this guy another title. Call it Super Kids and let's have some fun. <laughs> Yeah, I agree, 100%. Uh, okay, Batgirls, we're up to issue number 17. Uh, just a couple issues left. It ends with 19. Uh, so, you know, how it's all going to play out remains to be seen. We're, we're still in uh, this this portion of Gotham called The Hills. Uh, throughout the writers, Becky Clooney and Michael W. Conrad have, have leaned into that. Uh, they make references to Burnside, another famous... Uh, recently made famous uh, portion of Gotham City and a recent Batgirls run. Uh, Robbie Rodriguez handles the art, Rico Renzi on colors, Becca Carey on letters here. So yeah, as I mentioned, Grace O'Halloran shows up uh, as they continue to kind of lean into the ideas that they have throughout. Again, like several of the issues that we had this week, very much a talking heads issue, very much a, a setup issue. Um, a sniper is, uh, there's a bit of a block party and a sniper takes out 
uh, or is shooting at um, members of the community as they're out celebrating. The Batgirls uh, in their civilian guys, along with uh, the help of some others, managed to get everybody undercover, all except for Grace Halloran, O'Halloran's longtime cameraman. He's critically injured. Um, and then uh, the GCPD show up and uh, Montoya, Rene Montoya, commissioner, is wondering how the Batgirls always get there ahead of them. Well, clearly because they're residing in that area of the city. Um, so, yeah, I'm not hundred percent on board with this characterization from Montoya and come across as particularly smart. Uh, but anyway, who this sniper might be and what he's after all that is very much up in the air. So again, bit of a setup issue, honestly, not much happened it, it, for me. It felt like it dragged a little bit. Um, and I've never been a fan of Robbie Rodriguez's art. It's just way too muddy for my taste. Um, it's not clean, uh, by any sh shape or form. Uh, he tries to use a lot of textures with, you know, these interesting digital brushes, but it just ends up looking like the whole thing is dirty to me. Um, I, I suppose it fits in with the style that we've had in Batgirls uh, a lot. I mean, early on that Jorge Corona ink splatter, uh, this is not so different from that. Um, so it certainly is consistent with the art that Batgirls has had for the majority of its run, um, but I haven't enjoyed that art for the majority of its run. So for me, yeah, this was just kind of a meh issue. Um, was a bit of a chore to get through, to be to be honest. So um, I am hoping it goes out on a high note, though. Um, but overall, just, yeah, I wasn't a big fan of this uh, start of this story. What did well, you think? Uh, this is my second favorite issue out of the entire 17-issue run. My first favorite one was the one with Lady Shiva having that conversation with, with uh, Cassandra Kane, although it was really Stephanie and her body or whatever but in any event uh, I actually like the art this is my favorite art of the entire series as well I like Robbie Rodriguez I like the fact what how he experimented here I think it works very well uh, it's funny they actually look like adults uh, <laughs> Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Kane actually look like adults they look actually like older teenagers having fun and they don't look like children in pajamas, you know, get, you know, swinging through Gotham, which never made any sense. They're like, a, look, look, look at the bunch of look at the two 12 year old Batgirls swinging around. I mean, the art was just it was, a, as I said, I'm, I'm sorry to sound like a broken record, but it's too many issues. The art never matched the story. And here, you know, it's kind of funny in the in this course of seven in the course of 17 issues. If you just look at the art, it looks like Cassandra Kane and Stephanie Brown aged from 12-year-olds to 17-year-olds. <laughs> but I like this. This actually, They look like older teenagers here. I actually think that – I think that the uh, – is it is it the Clunrads that actually wrote this one? Oh, it is. Yeah. And uh, uh, I think they're finally getting into their own just when they're finally starting to get – get get going here uh the series is canceled i like the plot here it's finally a little bit more it's 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 you know there's some aspects uh, with, with the dialogue here which might might be a little off but for the most part i like the fact that we got a sniper i like the fact that this is serious stuff i like the fact that batgirl cassandra kane she's extremely competent here she's very good at what she's she does uh the batgirls stephanie brown she takes charge of the scene when when there's a when there's a sniper attack on uh, in the dance hall uh, stephanie brown is coming into her own and so is cassandra kane they both express a confidence here they they seem to have a rapport together and i'm seeing this more now than i ever did before i never saw it before and i'll be very blunt i blame the art this was um uh, again i'm a broken record again i'm sorry but man i 
I've, I'm trying to think of an example where there's been such a disastrous, disastrous combination of artist and, 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 and writer. Um, uh, it's just never worked here, but I, I think for the, this is the first issue where I, where I thought the art finally was up to task, at least on par with the story. Uh, I actually, I, I think Stephanie Brown even looks, God forbid, she actually looks kind of like young and sexy here. Oh my God, is that allowed? I'm, uh, it's just, it's very well done. Even Grace O'Halloran, even her, she seems to be, uh, uh, I, she seems more, more adult. Like I, I just like the art. I'm, I'm, I feel more vested in this story than, than in any of the previous ones. And I'm actually curious as to know who is this sniper? Why do they want to take down uh, the Batgirls? I even like the fact that other members, other gang members of, of, of this area of Gotham City, they care about Gotham City and they want to use guns. They want to use guns there because to, 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 to protect themselves against the snipers. And there's even an implied message about, you know, gun ownership and gun violence and there's even but but not done in a in a forced way I, th I i thought this was was very well done and even some of the pages with the art i love with the, the showing the sniper uh where he's got uh stephanie brown in his in his or her sights we don't know who the sniper is and at the end it, there does seem to be uh there does seem to be a situation where there's one there's a bullet uh, tease for for each Batgirl, which uh, would be obviously including uh, Barbara Gordon in that, I would imagine. So I actually enjoyed this. My second favorite Batgirl's run since the run began, and sadly, it's near the end of its run. But you know, I suppose it's better late than never. Yeah, I guess. Uh, all right, on to the last book we're going to talk about in detail: Wonder Woman number seven ninety eight, also counting down to an eight hundredth issue. Uh, also written by Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad. We get art here from Amon K. Nahalapin. Colors by Tamara Bonvillon, letters by Pat Barroso. Uh, you mentioned enjoying this um, more than you have a lot of previous uh, Wonder Woman issues. So, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I'm just waiting for. Uh, so, I'm just waiting. Okay, uh, for the pages to pop up here. Um, not a big fan of the variant covers, frankly. Although there is one with uh, with uh, Mary Marvel in the background that I, that I like. I'm not sure who the artist is. I'm showing it on the screen here, but. Um, uh, look, there's all kinds of things that are a little bit wonky with the story, but just a quick recap. We know that the Hera is in control of the gods and she she's trying to utilize all the gods on the planet to convince them to basically create fear amongst humanity so that that'll create more worshiping power, which will somehow empower the gods and Hera wants to control them all. Uh, there's been a mysterious figure in black that's been helping Wonder Woman from the beginning and also interacting with the Amazons and Themyscira and, uh, through Queen Nubia and, and the Amazons and that's revealed to be Ares. And Ares, of course, wants to help Diana because Ares wants he, Ares has no problem fermenting war. It does war in any of its forms. If it's war between the gods and humanity, or humanity amongst themselves, or gods amongst themselves, Ares is happy because he's the god of war. And so, but Ares, Ares wants to help Diana because he sort of liked he just sort of liked the way it was before. He likes he he likes humanity uh, rather than. I'm, I'm assuming Ares gets his power not so much from worship, but simply from the fact, from the act of war itself. And so Ares has a vested interest to see to it that Hera is defeated here. So he wants to join on the side of, of Wonder Woman here. Now, Hera attacks and there's this big battle between Hera and, and Wonder Woman and... 
Uh, and they just go, you know, Hera just goes full bore on Wonder Woman. And ultimately, Hera, Hera does does defeat Wonder Woman. She defeats Wonder Woman. They basically give each other speeches, you know, Hera, you know, sort of dialogue back and forth, not really revealing all that much. We, we Hera, Hera, this is not a sophisticated plan. This has not been a well-plotted series. Hera just, her plan literally would appear to be just attack the world uh, and mysteriously the Teen Titans are missing the Justice League are missing this is really just taking place with Wonder Woman and the gods with Shazam and Mary Marvel Wonder Woman gets defeated and but the reason why I'm I'm, I'm not going to rant too much this week on it is because I, I think one of them perhaps one of the more interesting aspects about it I could I could criticize it but I'm going to choose to be interested and intrigued by it is this notion of Mary Marvel giving her powers of Shazam to Wonder Woman and that's what she does. Wonder Woman is defeated and is about to be killed by Hera. But Mary Marvel shows uh, up and touches the forehead of Wonder Woman, transferring the power of Shazam into Wonder Woman. And it looks, uh, at first it looks, um, well, at first it looks really odd. She glows yellow. Uh, and then, you know, cue Mary Marvel giving a speech and Hera giving a speech and and. Atlantiade showing up, talking to Steve Trevor out of the blue. Most people reading this won't know who Atlantiade is because how many people read Wonder Woman? Atlantiade is the uh, is a is a is a character is the daughter of Aphrodite. But uh, Atlantiade shows up. She it's a he she it's a sort of a trans. It's, she's he she is both male and female. Atlantiade being the daughter of of Aphrodite, the the goddess of love. She's Atlantiade is both genders. And in any event, she talks to Steve Trevor and she brings Trevor to safety. And Wonder Woman is transformed into sort of like, I don't know, I, I guess she's Wonder Woman, Wonder Shazam, whatever it is. And she's powered up. There's a pretty cool suit. Uh, you know, Q, you know, somebody called Todd McFarlane. We got our future Todd McFarlane action figure here. Wonder Woman with the powers of Shazam. That's kind of cool. And, uh, and the battle... Is, well, that's really how the series ends with Wonder Woman about to attack Hera. And that leads in sort of the backup where at some point in this between Wonder Woman battling Hera, the backup is just Wonder Woman gifting uh, gifting Mary Marvel with a gift from the Amazons so that Mary Marvel's not completely powerless, even though Mary Marvel does, or even though Mary Bromfield, who is no longer Mary Marvel because she gave Wonder Woman, her powers of Shazam. Wonder Woman gifts her with uh, sort of like a tiara and some some shoes and some gauntlets. So so she's got the power of flight, uh, the power of the, the power of flight, the probably some intelligence and some strength as well. So Mary Mary Bromfield does have some powers at the end of this, but just not the powers of Shazam. Uh, although spoiler alert, this ends with. Uh, Mary Mary Bromfield. This the next chapter of this story is very interesting, and people, fans of the Shazam family and fans of Mary Marvel will want to keep an eye on this issue and in the issue that follows. So, I'm I'm intrigued by this. It's a terrible Wonder Woman issue, but it uh, it is an, a good issue, I think, potentially for what it holds for the future of Mary Marvel. So that's all. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I was kind of. Confuse myself. So you don't, you wouldn't consider, because uh, there's very, multiple references, right? Once Wonder Woman gets 
the powers of Mary Marvel. There's multiple references by several gods. Oh, Wonder Woman, you're finally a god, right? She gets the power yep. of Shazam. We know the, ultimately the power of Shazam is, you know, power bestowed by gods. Um, right. And so a oh, Wonder Woman, you, you know, you're finally, you're finally one of us. You're finally a god. Well, nobody ever, nobody ever, to my knowledge, ever has called Shazam a god or Mary Marvel a god. Yeah, they, you know, reference them as having the power of the gods, but they're not gods themselves. So I guess I was just a little bit unclear. Why, when Wonder Woman gets the this power, why is she considered a god? So that that didn't really yeah. make sense to me. I, yeah, I mean, for I, the I most agree. part, yeah. yeah, for the most part, we haven't been super enthused, I guess you'd say, about the state of this Wonder Woman series, right? It, it just yeah. it hasn't been that good um and so it's a little it's been a little better when we've come to this lazarus planet revenge of the gods g willow wilson getting involved and you know i alluded to it before well maybe it's because you know we're finally sensing that the end is in sight and so that allows us to you know enjoy it a little bit more you know i don't i don't know um but this this particular issue for me felt like a step back um because it just felt so unfocused in a lot of ways. And, and I just couldn't get past that, that, you know, seemingly minor point of why, okay, why is she a God and Mary Marvel when she has those powers is not a God. Like that just didn't make sense to me. Yeah. And, and you're right. It does, yeah. you know, perhaps portend uh, a new future and a different take on Mary Bromfield and who she is. Um, but I don't particularly, if this, this is who she is, if, if Wonder Woman is going to, maintain those powers and and mary marvel's not going to have them and she's simply going to be a mortal that has powers bestowed on her by these amazonian artifacts that she has that's not as interesting to me as as mary marvel as a shazam character so um yeah i'm, I'm not i'm not really interested in reading about about that version of of mary marvel yeah. well, I, I like where she's at right now well, I, I won't spoil anything. I, I have read the, the final chapter of Revenge of the Gods. And there is, I think there's a little bit of a cool factor with, uh, with, uh, with Mary Marvel. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure if everybody would agree with me on that. So, uh, okay, let me see here. Oh, let me see. Sorry, Jace is not. Okay, there you go. Yeah, yeah, not sure lost you there for a second. But uh, in any event, uh, the the fate of Mary Marvel. Uh, Mary Marvel is still going to be Mary Marvel, but the source of her powers is going to be uh, different uh, at the close. And I'll just leave it at that. And you know, well, I'm 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 going to have a rant when when we review the next chapter of this. Uh, but I'm I'm trying to stay positive. I'm trying to stay positive because overall this was a better week for DC than than we've had I think in weeks past. So I figured I've I've ranted enough about Wonder Woman. I don't want to sound like I'm trying to focus on the positive. So give me some credit. <laughs> no, 100%, 100%. And and things have been looking up recently. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean from 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 I mean look where we were, right? With how disappointed we all were in Future State. I mean it's still it 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 almost physically hurts me when I think about Future State. Thinking about how I went all in on it. I bought so many variant covers. I spent, I mean, I just have a stack two feet high, probably yeah. closer to three feet high of Future State stuff because I bought almost every cover. Spent a lot of money on that. And it was it was dreck. I'm sorry. 
for the most part, it was it was not good. So from there to Infinite Frontier, where we were promised certain things and you know didn't necessarily feel like it delivered, with uh, Infinite Crisis and, and what have you, to this new Dawn of DC, which you know the new publishing initiative, and we're hoping for for the best. Well, it, here's the thing: Dawn of DC, I'd say so far what we've have of it, it doesn't feel cohesive. It doesn't feel coherent in terms of a shared universe which is what we love so much about DC, mm-hmm. but at least the individual stories seem to be pretty good. Well, and that kind of leads me to one, my last point I'll make about Wonder Woman here before we pick our, our favorite DC books of the week, uh, which is we know that Wonder Woman is not going to maintain these powers of Shazam um, indefinitely because we know in the Tom King run that's coming up later this year, I think it starts in September, she doesn't have those powers. So yes. whether Mary Marvel gets them back or whether it's just – Billy Batson is no longer sharing them, I guess remains to be seen because um, we have a Mark Wade Shazam series coming. Yeah. So we'll see how that all, all plays out. But yeah. Uh, now, that before, being we, said, before yeah, we get into the pick of the week, I just want to say that when you talk about Dawn of the DCU, I do want to make a quick reference to Night Terrors coming out. And I think the idea with Night Terrors uh, is that uh, with, with this big event, with in this new villain insomnia that that it ends up that the Trinity Wonder Woman Batman Superman discovering the justice in the in the Hall of Justice ends up you know showing all the heroes it's sort of like uh, Joshua Williamson described it as Freddy Krueger meets the DC universe and so I think the general idea is what I, I've, as I have been told by others. Uh, in particular, live stream I was on with Nerd at Newsstand yesterday, uh, indicating that that the idea in theory is to sort of try to unify more continuity-wise all the titles of the DC Universe under one common thread storyline. There's like 46 different titles that will have the Night Terrors banner uh, if over G- of July and August. And hopefully this will be more successful than Future State and, and, and what, you know, the, the, what we've gotten in the past because you know we know that all the DC writers got together and they bragged about and they talked about having more communication with each other and uh, trying to you know, focus more on knowing what's going on in the other books. Hopefully, Night Terrors will do that. Uh, there's a lot of gorgeous variant covers as well. I, I, while I'm not super impressed with necessarily all all the solicitations, the, I will say that the cover art looks absolutely fantastic. It's probably going to hurt my wallet a little bit because I have looked at some of them. So I just thought I would. Uh, I, th- I thought I'd give that a quick mention. And uh, I don't know if you have any comments you want to make on Night Terrors or not. I'm just not very excited about it. I mean, um, I don't. Again, I'm, I've said so many times I'm not the biggest horror guy. I've come to enjoy horror comics more over the past four or five years than I did previously. Um, and it seems to be sort of the, the I don't want to say the flavor of the month, but uh, it seems to be the thing comic book wise that is doing the best in terms of sales. When you look at things like Noctera from Scott Snyder or Something is Killing the Children from James Tynan, House of Slaughter from Tynan. Dark Ride has been very successful for Joshua Williamson. You know, it's not like this is his first go round with writing, you know, horror. He's been kind of playing with it for a while now. Um, so from that perspective, um, you could see it as sort of the inevitable, right? Like DC wants to kind of lean into that. But the idea of mashing DC up with with horror, again, it just doesn't seem that interesting to me. Um, so I all I would say about it is I'm not, I'm not looking forward to it. Um, and whether or not it's because I got burned by uh, future state or, you know, you could look at it that way or not. 
Um, I won't be going all in on it. I won't be buying a ton of it. Um, I'll, I'll be very, very selective, which is, you know, not my usual MO when it comes to these sort of yeah. things. Um, so yeah, we'll see. All right. Uh, anyway. Uh, all right. Pick, pick of the week. Of the what's week? your, what was your, what was your favorite DC book? Oh man. Uh, let me see here. Um, this is a, this is a tough one for me. Um, my pick of the week, I think I'm going to have to go with, you know, I'm going to go with deceased. I'm going to go with deceased for my pick of the week. Um, yeah, I'll go with Deceased. There, there's a lot of good titles, but I'll, I'll go with Deceased. What about yourself? Yeah, this is another one of those times I'm, I'm compelled. You know, usually we don't like to pick the same book, like to uh, spice it up. But for me, Deceased was head and shoulders above everything. And there was a lot of great stuff. I mean, Flash was fantastic. The latest issue of Superman was great. Superboy's uh, Man of uh, Tomorrow started off uh, on a really high note, but. Yeah, I can't pick anything but deceased. I mean, I was in the airport with tears coming out of my eyes. <laughs> uh, I got to pick it, you know? Uh, yeah. I, and I was sitting there, you know, I, I laughed out loud at the Ares as the stalker of war rather than the god of war. That yeah. line from Lobo was just hilarious. And then, you know, four or five pages later, I got, you know, the heartstrings being tugged and, and I got tears coming out of my eyes. And I all I could think was, damn you, Tom Taylor. Damn you. You got me tearing up in the airport. Um, so yeah, it was, it was just fantastic. Uh, so I, I couldn't in good conscience pick, uh, pick anything else. So, right uh, all right, that's going to do it for this episode. Anything else you want to share with everybody, Rocky? Uh, no, no, just uh, happy reading. Enjoy your comics this week. And then we'll, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I don't have anything else planned for the rest of the week. I'm too busy, but, uh, you got anything planned this week? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I was really hoping this year things would slow down at, at my day job and I'd be able to, to get out more content. But the only thing we've been consistently putting out is this DC Spotlight, so thank God for that. Uh, but yeah, hoping to get back on on track, do more interviews, but just trying to find the time. So uh, anyways, everybody, if you do want to hear those interviews when they do come out, be sure you're uh, subscribed to the Comic Source on wherever you get your podcast. Conversely, if you check us out uh, regularly on the audio only, head over to YouTube and subscribe to Rocky's channel. There's plenty of back matter there, plenty of other spotlights that Rocky and I have done on various things, plenty of content he's done on his own, whether it's on the collectible side or the actual story side of comics. So go check it out. Comic space, boom, exclamation point on YouTube. Once you get there, you know what to do. Ring the notification bell, like this video, leave comments below and be sure and subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. So that's going to do you can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.